Hello and welcome to Final Games, the podcast about the games that inspired us. You're listening to the 13th episode of the show. And actually, before we get started on today's show, I actually have a little bit of news. Last week, this podcast was actually included in GQ Magazine's Best Podcasts of 2016 list, which is amazing and strange. And It was actually the only video game-based podcast on the list as well, which is also even more amazing considering all of the incredible podcasts that are out there. Um, And it was featured on a list that had podcasts such as This American Life, uh, In Our Time, and Serial, uh, which is just pretty crazy um so this would never have happened without you the listeners tuning in every week and uh helping the show to get where it is today uh especially on the short amount of time it's been running so thanks to everyone who has listened commented uh shared and reached out i'm incredibly appreciative and also this definitely would not have happened of course without the incredible guests that i've had on the show so far And speaking of incredible guests, my guest today is quite literally the one person I've worked desperately to interview since I started this show. His writing work, podcast work, and video work have most definitely influenced this show and my own video work as well in many ways. Starting out his career in games journalism as a staff writer at Official Xbox Magazine after working in games PR for a few years, his name quickly rose in the games world thanks to his excellent articles and video work whilst at Future Publishing. He then made a move to Video Gamer where alongside previous guest Simon Miller started to make content that literally took the internet by storm from the amazing reviewsicles that they did to his E3 Abridged series, he really started to make a name for himself as one of the biggest video game personalities on video around. He's such an incredible talent that since leaving Video Gamer to go freelance and work on his own projects, he's been doing some fantastic things. It's quite possible you might know him for his work with his friend Quinton Smith on the otherwise excellent board game-centric website Shut Up and Sit Down, or maybe the video work the two of them do on their video game-centric YouTube channel Cool Ghosts. On Cool Ghosts, you can see excellent work like his Roguelike series, or my personal favourite, the Subterfuge Diary series. But maybe you don't even know him from any of those, and you've only got to know him through his podcast work, whether it be his video game podcast, Daft Souls, which won a GMA award in 2014, or for the comedy podcast, Regular Features, which he hosts with three of his friends, including previous Final Games guest, Gav Murphy. I have no idea how he keeps up with it all, or how he even does it. I imagine he's an extremely busy man. And this is all without even mentioning his work with Charlie Brooker, or his freelance articles on Vice Gaming. He's the very inspiring Mr. Matt Lees. Hello, Matt. Hello. God, that's oh, bloody hell. That's uh, an entire army of trumpets being blown all at once. <laughs> I need to get that printed on very, very tiny text and hand it out on business cards. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, that's, that's made, you've made me sound way better than I am there. I'm eternally <laughs> grateful. Well, it's absolutely excellent to have you here. As I said, I am actually a very huge fan of yours and I've enjoyed your work for a very long time. So to get to this point now, we're on the 11th of April when we're recording this. I'm now speaking to you on my own show. It's pretty incredible for me as well. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So how are you doing today on this very fine day? I'm doing good. Uh, it's, it's a nice bright day. The winter's going away and yeah, things are going very well. As you say, I've got like a bunch of stuff going on at the moment trying to condense it down to just mainly doing my own stuff yeah, uh, and uh, not doing kind of freelance as much unless it's projects that I'm really interested in. And yeah, it's an exciting year. Lots of things exciting going on and uh, I'm enjoying the process of very slowly disappearing from the traditional industry like a strange sort of slug slash frog. It's funny you say that really because uh, not that long ago you were on also a previous Final Games guest, Danny O'Dwyer's uh, GameSpot show. 
And yeah. uh, uh, there was something you spoke about in terms of making a community. And almost, it's funny how we think about games media and uh, a lot of people are aiming to have the most numbers or the biggest amount of views. Um, to, and it almost feels like your work has to be for everyone or seen to be for most people. Whereas you yeah, seem to absolutely. be aiming for a community. Like you're almost working as a community uh, civil servant almost in video gaming. Like there's this group of people that you you know and like and you're working for them on a daily basis, not really anyone else. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the key thing is is what I've always tried to do really is just I work for myself really. Um, okay. I make the sort of thing that I'd like to see and uh, that changes basically depending on, on where I'm currently at and what I'm currently doing and also what else is currently out there. So I think that's always, you know, if there's something that you want to see and you don't think it exists, then that probably means there's a gap there somewhere, something that's not being done. Yeah. Either that or you just it does exist and you don't know about it. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, that's kind of what I've always tried to do is I, I've always felt like at every stage of my career that the games uh, media hasn't been filling a gap that I felt passionate about. And so I've just... Um, just try to do that really so it just happens to be that, that i feel like the things i want to do aren't being done and there are enough people out there who also want to see that and so that's kind of yeah that's as simple as it is i think that it's the opposite um of what most people tend to do i guess of just looking at what's popular you know most yeah absolutely. most websites the approach with video is to go well what's popular and they go well let's make loads of videos about skyrim or gta or yes. minecraft um and basically just chasing uh success that's already there Whereas I'm not really as interested in success um, uh, anymore. Um, I'm more interested in just doing, making good things. And if, if things are are a bit niche, but the, everyone who watches it thinks it's great, then that's that's fine with me. I mean, actually, you mentioned Subterfuge Diaries. I was incredibly proud of the Subterfuge Diaries series. Always going to be niche, never going to be huge. Yes. Um, I, it, was, it was a great piece of work. And I finished that project... Um, really happy with the whole arc of it and i think it's it's great to be in that position um rather than the position that you would be in most websites i think if you're producing that of about halfway through you probably get to the stage of having arguments with your editor about about it because you know they'd be like well yeah but the numbers are going down you know you, you can't keep spending as much time to make it as good every yes. week because usually you might be top heavy with that you might make it like amazing a first episode but if you're not getting the viewers then the quality has to dive because you can't afford the time it becomes yeah. a simple kind of pragmatic thing but um in my circumstance i can and we can just have a thing of being like okay doesn't matter if only like two thousand people watch the finale um if all of those two thousand people think it was excellent consistently then i'm i'm happy with that that's all i, I always, care about i always like to think about it as a room almost uh especially yeah. with like videos um only recently did uh, a video I do uh, about Mitomo, which is obviously hitting this sort of popular stride in things. It got the most views I'd had uh, ever, I think. And uh, it, was, it wasn't many. It was about 3,000. Um, but I imagine being in a room with 3,000 people who are all paying attention to me and think, wow, oh, it's overwhelming, actually, it? that's, yeah. that's an incredible amount of people. <laughs> Absolutely. I remember the first time I had a video which, which went viral, which was... Uh, an advert for a fake product called BAM, uh, which was basically just <laughs> butter and jam in a jar. But we did a 1990s style advert on the net. It's still on the internet. And as it, for what it was and what it was made on, i.e. a flip cam and edited in a Windows Movie Maker, um, I'm still really proud of it. It's a great bit of stupid 30-second comedy. 
but that got um, featured on the beta newsletter back when the beta newsletter was still quite a big thing. Okay, yeah. Um, and it got 15,000 views in like a few days. And I couldn't believe it. It was just, un- it just blew my mind. 15,000. And I think, it, yeah, it's funny. It doesn't, it doesn't scale up when, uh, when you're getting kind of, it's, it's always amazing. I think, I think, I think it, the problem is it's sometimes easy on the internet because of the scale of numbers and the yes. scale of numbers required to make money to find yourself in a position where you're not awed that you have more than like a thousand people watching something you've done. Cause that's amazing. Like, yeah. let's not mess around. Like having, having more than a thousand people look at something you've made and go, that's great. That's huge. Having like, two almost... football stadiums worth of people <laughs> staring yeah, at you. It's just, it's crazy. Yes. It's, and I think it's very easy um, to lose sight of that um, for lots of reasons, partially because of the way the human brain works and partially how, you know, you get diminishing returns for, you know, dopamine and endorphins for these sorts of things from your brain as a reward, but also because of the nature of the job. Often, you know, you go, well, yeah, you've got 2000 hits, but you know, that's not actually worth anything. And um, I think it's easy sometimes to get trapped in this mindset that uh, unless things are mainstream success, they're not pop, they're not worthwhile. And um, yeah, I think that that realization and that kind of change uh, shifted a lot of um, of what I was doing and and definitely caused a bit of kind of existential crisis at one point because, you know, <laughs> as a children of the mid 80s and 90s, I very much grew up thinking, well, what do you do if you do this sort of thing? Well, what's the end game? And of course, the end game is television. Imagine being on television. Wow. Like, you couldn't have anything better than that, could you? And then you actually like dabble around in TV and realize that actually it's like, you know, the money's good, but you're working with hundreds of other people and you don't have much control over the final product. And I've talked to lots of people who work in TV and the most terrifying thing is you can work for six months on a show and then it's just rubbish and it's not your fault. It's just, it just is. And very much similar, terrifying. I imagine, to like games development then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's just hugely unappealing. And also the fact that you realize that, A, your television's dying and all the people who are watching it are getting older. I have lots of people all the time talking about like, oh, why aren't there really good TV shows about video games? It's like, yeah, but you wouldn't watch it if there was. Like TV is increasingly for older people and it's fine but it leaves you in this weird position of having like all of your aspirations as a child are now kind of <laughs> worthless and then you have to find yourself well what do i want to do uh, and i find it's um the last few years with shut up and sit down and now cool ghosts have been a, a kind of cool learning curve for that in terms of being like working out what your actual kind of future is and what yeah. you want to do with it and it's actually kind of terrifying being at the vanguard of it and not just having something to follow um, I'd, I'd really like that to just have like, you know, obviously working with Charlie Brooker is amazing, but um, <laughs> I can't follow his path because his path is uh, a different one from a different time. Um, so I have to work it out on my own, which is frightening, but also exciting. And I'm definitely more excited about it than, than uh, it, anything else it, at the moment. Is it quite cathartic to be this almost sort of man in his shed building his things for a small amount of people to see but you know you're self-sufficient and there you have complete creative control and that kind of thing yeah i think so i mean uh i, I think i have to remind myself a lot of time how lucky i am with that because sometimes i am just man in his shed sitting on his own for hours and hours uh losing your mind quietly but uh <laughs> no yeah i mean i've i always forget like how amazing that is and how frustrated i used to feel about having to explain things to people and justify my ideas to people um and and you know like pitch stuff of being like i've got this idea i think it's going to be good um it's nice that i don't have to do that anymore you know if, if i know something is going to be good it's going to be good like and i i just sometimes am not good at explaining why i mean i struggle to explain what i do to people when they ask me um 
I usually just sort of say, well, I'm on YouTube, but I'm not a complete dickhead, uh, which is my, <laughs> the best way I can describe it. Um, so no, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing having the freedom to just sort of do whatever I want to. And it's, it's more amazing, to be honest, having developed uh, an audience of people who trust me enough to just let me do that and, um, and not get too hung up on being like, no, we want the same things you've always done. Um, it's nice that I, f- I feel like the majority of people like my work, what they like about it is the element of surprise. And uh, they don't get annoyed that things are changing and I do always have waves of fans that come for one thing and then get annoyed when that doesn't hang around. But yeah. uh, my work has evolved a lot over the years and I think uh, it's going to change again. Um, and as I say, it's about filling the gaps. Like when I started, um, when I was doing a lot of the analytical stuff, a lot of the kind of industry poking stuff, a lot of serious talks, I still do bits of that every now and then. But I felt like at one time there wasn't a lot of people talking about industry issues with serious in serious ways. Now there are actually lots of people doing that. So I don't feel the need to do it as much. Um, and the same thing when I started making fun of the uh, press conferences, the E3 uh, Bridge series, yeah, that the, the that also went viral, didn't it? That went, that was huge. Yeah, that was huge. I mean, that got like the first one of those got about five and a half million views. It might be close to about six million now. I don't know. What? Um, How do you comprehend that sort of amount of people? Well, you no. don't. Uh, you don't. It, <laughs> it blows your mind, and then you never really comprehend it because, as you say, like you can only really imagine a big room. Yes. Like, and that's not a big room. That's a small country. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, you just don't comprehend it. And it is, it is strange that, uh, especially because I didn't really plaster my name or face over any of that stuff. And because it's not that similar to the work I do mostly now, it's kind of interesting that a lot of people don't know I did those. And every now and then I, I'm talking to people about stuff and, uh, and then people go, oh yeah, yeah. And I sort of say, oh, I did them. And people go, what? <laughs> Even I've had people occasionally, but a couple of people talk to me about that video. And that's weird when somebody goes, oh, do you remember those videos? And you say, well, yeah, I made them. <laughs> uh, which is really weird. And people think you're lying. But um, yeah, I, I guess at that point, like, there was just so much like reverence for these um these big silly marketing things and uh there was nobody really people were kind of taking the mick out of them but they were just being angry and snarky and calling them liars and stuff and it was all very dull yeah uh, trite so i just i thought it'd be fun to just take the mick and then it's funny how now like that then was something i wanted to do because nobody else was doing it now there's loads of people doing that sort of thing and more so actually i i don't want to be like I changed the industry, but I do feel like I do wonder if there's, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that I started this wave of people taking the mick out of these conferences and making them look stupid. And in the years that have followed, we've now seen a massive shift in terms of less of these po-faced things. And now actually we've got lots of these um, conferences. They're actually taking the mick out of themselves and filling them with stupid jokes themselves. And, and I don't think, that that's a coincidence. I think that that, that somebody somewhere, people have realized that, oh, look, people are taking our serious po-faced things and turning them into memes. Yeah. Let's try and make our own memes within them. And Ubisoft particularly really gone hard for that. That's definitely so happened, it's, hasn't um, it? It's this... Yeah, I think it has. And I think now people say, oh, we want more of the E3 abridged and stuff. It's like, you can't. Like it's, it's like, it's like you're making jokes about your dad and now your dad is trying to get in on the joke. It doesn't work anymore. Like it's too, they're too self-aware that Fucking people like me are going to do it. Well, it's just the nature of things. And so, yeah. you know, now I'm doing other stuff. And if if the stuff I'm doing now becomes too mainstream and widespread, then maybe I'll do something else. I don't know. It's fine. It seems like you're constantly evolving, which is very strange for games media. But obviously you talk about the freedom to be able to do that. Whereas other sites, they do hit the waves of popularity. And sometimes that's out of necessity because otherwise you quickly become just unimportant and 
fade away compared to everyone else because unfortunately as much as uh, a lot of people like us do like that sort of niche angle on many different video game things there are there are so many that outnumber us who prefer those games that are like GTA 5 or FIFA or Battlefield and all these kinds of things. So you see hundreds and hundreds of videos about Minecraft and that kind of thing. So many sites have to stay relevant. Um, but I but- think the interesting thing about that is that actually these websites are all culturally irrelevant. Um, and I think that's what you, why you'll find that people who working games media who are interesting or um interested in growth and change and and thinking about themselves and their work will um go through lots of different phases of of uh, of of ideas and and uh, and what they're doing and how they're approaching it um or will just leave and do something else entirely because the industry is just cyclical it's just the same conversations about the same type of games again and again and again the same arguments again and again Absolutely. it's boring and you know that's the thing is basically like you know you have a lot of websites who do just continue to do like here's seven things you didn't know about you know fallout 4 or whatever and that's fine you know it's their bread and butter um but it's also like the it's just absolutely culturally irrelevant it's just pointless crap which in will be entirely forgotten in six months a year and yeah as writers their names will just blow away in the dust it's nothing and i mean it's it's quite sad that a lot of people feel that the only way they can uh maintain themselves financially is to produce work which is utterly irrelevant um and i get it and it's difficult but uh, at the same time i just feel like um yeah i mean that's why i try and do different things is because i've i've always looked at the majority of the industry with contempt really of being like why is everybody doing this why is why is i mean that's what got me into it in the first place i think well that's what uh, i anyone... was gonna ask yeah. really um to scale it back obviously you worked in games pr and then you worked as a journalist um how, how what first attracted you to one working games anyway and then to make that switch well i mean uh some of the games i've chosen today will kind of take you through a bit of the process but uh okay the Switch itself uh, came about just uh, some of the titles I was working on in PR, just just watching cool titles just fall to the wayside because, you know, PR plans for them had fallen through and they just changed their mind and or whatever. I don't know. It was basically just a... I, it was one of those things where I just realized that it was perhaps I was working for a company that was too big um, and just the very nature of the beast um but i just i care too much about games to be a games pr really i think that's the thing is like it's really good to care about games a bit as a games pr but there's always going to come a point where you're going to either have to promote something that you don't think is very good or you're going to have to watch something that you think is excellent um not get the treatment and the love it deserves um from marketing and pr because of just decisions that have happened above your head and uh I found that I just cared too much about video games, frankly. And I also found that um, I had a lot of things I wanted to say about games and I wasn't allowed to say any of them in PR. And that was the thing I think I'd, before I got into the industry and worked in market research and then PR, I was uh, just, I was just an enthusiast guy. Like, you know, I ran little blogs, I did little podcasts. I love talking about games. And uh, I found myself frustrated with the state of games media often because I felt there were conversations about games and things I, I thought about games that no one else was saying. And um, that became a thing, really. When I was a kid, I used to love games magazines because I'd read them and I'd read people reading, like, like reading my thoughts on paper. I'm like, yeah, this person gets it. Wicked. But then when I was about 17, 18, I started to find that the opposite happened. And it was just like I found myself reading reviews and going, why, hasn't, like, why haven't they talked about this? And like, I just found like the things that I cared about 
it felt like no one was talking about. Okay. Um, and I guess that simmered in me for a long time until eventually I got a job doing it. And yeah, I think that's how, <laughs> I think that's how most people get into it, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. I was just very interested in that switch. Uh, there's been a lot of people I've known who have started out as journalists and then gone into PR, which always seemed very strange to me. Well, it's a traditional route, really, I think. I mean, the difficult thing is, as I say, it's, it's um, you know, I, I, I guess when I was younger, I used to have a bit more contempt for that, but I don't anymore because, as I know now, it's like actually – games media is boring it's cyclical it's the same stuff over and over again and there are always new ways of excitement that keep you in and keep you locked in and keep you feeling like games are cooler but if you're actually in that if you're trapped in that system of uh preview review hype preview review and and doing the listicles and doing like all the stuff you need to do to to make a normal website work then it's hard not to feel like you've just done it all before. And it's just, you just, you feel like it's just waves of the same stuff again and again and again, and all games start to just feel the same and it becomes boring. And I think that like, if your job is boring, then you need to change your job. And I think also one of the major issues with games media is it's extremely badly paid. Um, and I think the thing is when you get to be 30 and you have a job, which is no longer challenging you and no longer, um fascinating you and keeping you on your toes and you're also not earning any money and you're maybe thinking about wanting to settle down and have kids you know what do you do and a lot of the time the problem is you know if, if unless you're a stellar writer what experience have you got what you know and the yeah. fact is you have a lot of time you know you just you can write about video games and you know about video games and um a very easy transition is is to move into pr and uh, why not it's it's a different thing to do it's uh and I think that that is um, the big challenge I face right now is how do you how do you make games media not a dead end? That's the big question. You know, how, how do you actually make it so that it isn't a roller coaster ride that you have your fun with games media and then you get to the end and you get off and you do something else? Um, because that is consistently what everybody does. Um, very, very few people stay in it for the long haul. Um, it's a very interesting I, yeah. career because there's no sense of progression there's no there's no real promotion elements in any aspect of it. it doesn't matter whether you're like a video producer or you're a writer you can only really hit the wall of being an editor or um you know like a video production editor and, and when you're an editor it's a different job that's the yes. thing like, and you know, when you it's... become a magazine editor you're not a writer anymore yeah and it's you're that change that that you have to make to progress a career but once you get to there it almost stops it's it's not like if you start out as like a maybe a tester at a video games company and then you become a designer then a senior designer you end up then being a... like head of the studio like anything yeah like yeah, absolutely you can... precisely and i think that's the thing is within the old publishing model like a you hit a wall and also it's this thing of being like you know what like most people who get into it they get into it because they really care about the medium and stuff if you then get promoted from being a writer to being like an editor, then like you're basically you're just shifting in towards being in the publisher side. And it's like, yes, you're probably earning more money now and you're like not worried about your future, but you're probably not doing what you wanted to do anymore. You know, it's like you're doing a management job. And then at that point, it's like, well, if you're doing a management job, why don't you just go and do a management job somewhere outside of editorial and get paid really well for it? So so I, I get it, you know, and I honestly feel like for a lot of people, and I really treated my jump into media in exactly the same way of being like, I didn't know when it was going to go till or when it was going to last. And I treat it very much as like, I want to do this because I've always liked the idea of doing it. And I wasn't expecting to do it for more than maybe a couple of years because 
it burns people out and it gets boring. And even now, like there are so many more factors now which burn it out for people. Like, whoa, it's it's a tumultuous and, and difficult uh, role, which is only only can really describe it as a vocation. Like, you know, you only do this if, if you really love it. And you definitely only stay with it if you love it. But um, yeah. Well, that's very interesting. And it's it's very strange, not strange, but very uh, good to hear it from someone like yourself who is very vocal about this kind of thing, you know, whether it be in your own videos or on, you know, uh, other shows or on Twitter as well. Um, and I think some people are almost afraid to not say bad things about the industry, uh, but it's such a sought after industry it doesn't matter whether you want to be in games development or games journalism. Everyone wants to play games for a living. So <laughs> on the oh, yeah, outside, no, it's so sought after that. I think some people are afraid almost that they will lose their jobs or there'll be other people who will be coming to push them out of their roles and sure. that kind of thing. You know, it's a, it's a double thing. It's It's partly that and it's partly that most people are employed by big companies and they're worried that anything they say will be seen as a reflection of their employer. Yes. Um, and I mean, I've been uh, like kind of self-employed for so long now and there are so few companies that I would work for that I just don't care. Like, um, <laughs> just like, fuck uh, like, this, fuck shitty, 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 fuck. <laughs> I'm just never going to work for these companies. And it's not like I hate them or anything. It's just no. like, well, you know, why would I? Like, uh, for the same reason of being like, I think having come from PR is the key thing for me because it's like I came from a position of compromise. Like PR is in itself a compromise. Um, in my mind, but that's because I'm like a ridiculous, I, you know, <laughs> like I'm not interested in selling stuff unless you always are 100% behind something you're selling. Yeah. And I know that's a weird, rare thing, but that's just like who I am. And so I kind of figured like if at any point, if I'm going to then compromise on the side of media, what's the point? Like, because I could have stayed in PR and made loads of money from doing that. So I kind of feel like there's no point working for a big site where I'm ending up compromising what I'm doing or what I'm saying. because. Yeah. Otherwise, the whole thing has been a big waste of time. But uh, yeah, so I think people are worried about pissing off their employers, which is fair and completely reasonable. I'm not going to have a go at that. You know, people have jobs. I've been in that position. You don't want to lose your job. Yeah. Um, but I also think, yeah, there is this thing of being like people are afraid about worrying that they're going to look entitled, etc. And I, I get that. But I also think it's partially bollocks because I think that is partially the the trap which the industry has built for many years um, that keeps, um, keeps people who are writers and videographers uh, on very low wages and very low respect it's um it's part of the whole trap it's why they can afford to pay people nothing because it's always been the argument that yeah but you know we can get like 20 people who want to do your job yes um which may be true but it's also like hugely just disrespectful to the craft the idea that you can be replaced by anyone um is just you know i think on one hand people might say oh yeah you're lucky to have that job you should be thankful for that and that's true but at the same time if you suggested to anybody, no matter what they do, like, oh, yeah, you're replaceable. Anyone can come in tomorrow and do your job as well as you do. That's just like, fuck off. Like, <laughs> like yeah. it's a really rude suggestion to make. Yes. And I think that, um, I, you know, I'm I'm proud of the craft that I put into my work and I always have been. And um, I think it's not until you you start um, standing up for what you do and how you do it that you, you can have respect enough for your work to start creating good things. And I think it's it's difficult because sometimes people feel like they can't complain. But, you know, well, yeah, like, you know, I've, I've got a great life. I've got a great job. I've built that for myself. And I reserve the right some days to complain. Like, not always, but like, <laughs> you know, 
it's 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 hard work sometimes and i'm not going to pretend that my life is peaches and creams just to keep um some pissed off 18 year old who wants my job happy because you know what i was a pissed off 18 year old who wanted my job once and it took me about seven or eight years of very hard work to get it so yes. just get get working <laughs> i'm i'm seven years down that line now and still not quite there so <laughs> it's a lot of work it's yeah a lot absolutely of work. absolutely well the reason you're here today is to talk about the top eight games that you've chosen for the show. And you said there basically is a ongoing timeline throughout them all. So we're going to listen to some music and go into your first game, which you just said one word to me on this series. And I'm not sure what game you were referring mm-hmm. to. So you can explain what game you've chosen from this series. So let's listen to some music. Okay, Matt, so when I asked you the other day for your games list in preparation for the show, uh, you had all the all them down, and then at the top was just XCOM. XCOM. <laughs> just XCOM. Um, obviously, you're only allowed to choose a game from the series. Mm-hmm. Um, so what game is it you're specifically choosing from the series? Well, the order, if you look carefully, was chronological, so it should be. It should be an obvious one, but uh, you might not have clocked that. So yeah, I'm talking I, about I thought about that. I thought about that. I did think about that, and you are correct. It is in chronological order, and so I imagine it's one of the first XCOM games, but I also know you're a huge fan of both XCOM, Enemy Unknown, and most recently XCOM 2, so I wasn't quite sure. Absolutely, and there's, you know, I think they play into it slightly, Um, but no, I'm talking about XCOM UFO Defense here, which was... um, The Microprose Classic, which came out when I was a kid. And, you know, I played tons of video games when I was a kid. Um, uh, this one was really one which which was a, is a big toss-up between this and Gunstar Heroes on the Mega Drive because I played tons of that with my brother. And I was, I've been thinking a lot about games I played growing up, and I realized that because I wasn't allowed violent video games when I was a kid, it meant that the majority of the games that we had on our Mega Drive were cooperative. And I think that's interesting because I've grown up to be somebody who's actually not... I like winning, but I'm very... I'm not competitive at all. I don't get angry about it. Okay. I do wonder if, if partly that's because I spent so much time playing um, just cooperative things all the time. But anyway, um, XCOM was the one I went for of this era just because it blew my mind. Um, it just had so much depth and complexity and atmosphere to it that um, I'd been playing a bunch of stuff and I'd never played anything like it. It was this thing of being like, yeah, the whole world's going on. Uh, there are aliens flying around the world and you've got to uh, find them and then you've got to shoot them down. And the horrible tension of just going through these dark maps, trying to hunt down 
the last one or two aliens and also like not knowing what they were. There were so many different aliens and you didn't know what they did. And, and uh, we used to play it. Um, I used to play it around my friend's house to begin with because I didn't have a PC that would run it. And, uh, and then eventually I did get a PC that ran it and I'd play it uh, with my dad sometimes. Mostly I'd play it on my own then he'd play it. He got into a bit and talk about it. And uh, yeah, it just, um, it just blew me away. It was, I'd never played anything like it. And I still haven't in some regards. Um, but I just have so many formative memories of, of just being so into it. that The music actually, just from the kind of the main menu, uh, the kind of creepy ding, ding. Yeah, it's very creepy. It's still just stuck in my head and still brings back a lot of memories. Uh, I, have, I have great fond memories of sitting and eating chopped up beef burgers with pasta um, <laughs> at Sean Bell's house. Sean Bell... Uh, was around and part of a lot of my formative memories of games. He's now uh, a guy who does Midnight Resistance. Yes, I think he's just yeah. launched a brand new podcast about games. I can't uh, remember what it's called. Computer Games Pod or Computer yeah, Games Yeah, something show. like that, Computer yeah. Games Show or something. But uh, yeah, no, he's he does a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, I used to go into his house. He had Terror from the Deep, which was arguably now agreed as being a, a very much inferior game to the original but it was bloody hard. I mean, it was, it was just a horrible, it was weird very difficult. Very, very difficult. It was so hard um but i think that was the allure i think it was there was so much stuff to discover in that game and it was so hard and frankly as kids we were not equipped with a tactical noose to to do well in it that um it kind of felt like it kept giving you kept discovering things and then being like oh my god i just found these things and also like <laughs> you really did feel like you were you were fighting against a an adaptive foe rather than just going through a campaign i think it was that was all really surprised me the most the fact that it managed to um Managed to evoke this sense of having another thinking foe out there, not in terms of the actual tactical layer of, of shooting the aliens, etc. They were a bit more predictable, even though actually sometimes their strange behavior just came across as being terrifying. Um, <laughs> Erratic. But yeah, it was like they just stay in a building waiting for you to come. And it's like, is that bad AI? It didn't feel like it. It just felt like they were just waiting for waiting. me. <laughs> uh, but it was more the fact that you could have a quiet run and you'd have nothing happen for a few months and you're earning all this money and everything's going well. And suddenly, bang, mutons. And you're just like, <gasps> and you died. And that was it. And you start again. Um, I, I guess really it was it was kind of a roguelike, um, but I'd never played anything like that. And I wasn't familiar with the idea of roguelikes at that point. So uh just this idea of this adaptive, sprawling, complex thing. Um, but yeah, it's it was hugely formative for me. My first uh, ever attempt at games writing really was I started a blog. Um, I, I started off, I think, doing some some writing for Dark Zero, which was a very small website, which uh, lots of decent people actually started on. To be honest, Emily Guerra started there as well. Sean Bell started there. That's how I, I uh, I did some stuff oh, wow. with him because he started doing stuff there. He stayed there for a long time. And actually, I was on the first few episodes of the Dark Zero podcast um, uh, before I got a job uh, working uh, as a market researcher. And then I couldn't be on the podcast due to conflict of interest. interest. And actually, okay. I guessed on the Dark Zero podcast years later. And uh, it was that perceived conflict of interest that uh, sort of lost me my job in market research. But uh, <laughs> hey, everything happens for a reason. Um <laughs> But but yeah, I, I feel like that after doing some stuff with Dark Zero, my first attempt to kind of actually create something of my own was a blog called terrormission.com, which was uh, inspired by XCOM and how my love for XCOM. And it was kind of just a blog about why games were cool and what games were cool. And 
Yeah, very much a, a relic of a different time. I was trying to do that with Sean Bell and Andy Hamilton, but out of the three of us, I was the only person with the drive to actually regularly do stuff, so it never really <laughs> took off. Um, and also now, it's like, good Lord, times have changed. Like, if I still had a website called terramission.com, I don't think I'd be allowed that. Like, I think I'd be in potentially some trouble. Like, the world is a different place now. It was a combination of naivety, I guess. Sign and, up uh, here. Yeah, like I think it's probably would have been blocked at work for a lot of people. Let's yeah, just probably. Say. But uh, yeah, so I think that that kind of my love for XCOM uh, really kicked off. And actually, uh, like before, I kind of got a job in um, in media. Uh, I was blogging about all sorts of stuff. And one of the things I, I didn't really blog about video games at all, but one thing I did blog about, which was video game related, which was a back and forth. It was as if it was emails from a bank requesting a loan. And it was like, it was basically a gag that it was an XCOM thing, but it wasn't revealed until about halfway down that it was an XCOM thing. It's this idea of like trying to get a bank loan, but pretending that everything's fine. You don't really need the money, but maybe some money would be useful. Um, <laughs> urgently, please. And then obviously, you know, the, the people being taken over by the aliens halfway through the email chain. Um, but I remember that. Yeah, that, that got a lot of love. You got like featured on RPS and all that ah. sort of stuff it was hugely exciting when you weren't actually games media. It was like, oh, gave me a taste for it. And um, yeah, XCOM, so then very let's, influential. Let's fast forward then to 2012. Um, the XCOM series went through uh, uh, spotty patches of random games that... Oh, it was awful for a long time, yeah. yeah. It's very, very... I mean, there was no things good to time love within the that. There were things to love within it, but largely I felt they were all pretty pretty awful they were too um, experimental there was there's it's funny now when we say experimental because there are so many games that are true tried and tested formulas that everyone sticks to but in the ps2 era and just before that in the playstation era, there's a lot of experimentation even with well-established mm. franchises like changing xcom into a first-person shooter and the, mm. that happened well, with XCOM with apocalypse it. which was very strange it was the same format as usual but i mean actually i never got into it but i heard there was lots to love there but i found it too different for me i didn't like it but okay uh, so then yeah, fast no. forward to 2012 uh, XCOM Enemy Unknown by Firaxis uh, and directed by Jake Solomon, who is, like yourself, a huge uh, you, uh, XCOM fan, uh, the original UFO Enemy Unknown. And uh, how, how did you feel, one, when you found out that we're making a new XCOM game and then your reaction to, holy shit, actually, this is good? Yeah, I was really concerned about it when it got announced. But in retrospect, that was very silly because I should have looked at what Firaxis do and, and, and how well they do it and realized actually they were going to do a great job. Um, I think, yeah, in a weird way, XCOM, again, why XCOM continues to be so important to me is is partly because of how, how well they adapted it to uh, modern design standards uh, in 2012. Yes. It was that thing of, um, and again, in a way, that's become a big influence for me in terms of uh, they just took so much of the original game that was silly, pointless fluff and just sharpened it up, you know. Like having characters with 63 action points and having a snapshot costing like 18 and an aim shot costing 26. I don't remember exactly, but you know what I mean? It was just, <laughs> it required you to do maths in your head. And yes. If you got it wrong, then you were just screwed. And that's not fun. I mean, you, it was, not you now, got around anyway. it to find the fun. It wasn't fun at the time, I don't think. It was, it was an element of frustration, basically. It, it was one was of those kind of, where you, you, you didn't really think about it because you had to draw maps on graph paper and very similar things where you had to not only you know play the game but you had to take thought processes out of the game 
you know, whereas it, now it, we don't it do worked. that. As a, as a system, it functioned because um, it worked because you'd mess it up. So it had this thing, if you have a plan, you're going to run over there, you're going to kneel, you're going to take a pot shot. Um, but then you run over there and you'd kneel and you wouldn't have enough action points for the shot. And then you had that sudden thing of going, fuck, fuck, I'm dead, fuck. <laughs> and that was like, that was XCOM. That was the whole thing of like, it went wrong. But, you know, obviously the thing is now you still have people who complain about random number generator. But at the same time now, it's always the case that whenever you make those choices, it's a clear choice and you're taking a chance. It's not that you've slightly messed up in the same way. And so I think it worked for that sense of, oh, no, you've cocked it up. But it did through it did away it did it in a way that was basically obfuscating um, things and, and, and forcing you to slip up more often than you should rather than just having you make decisions that you had to own. You know, in, in the new XCOM, it's like, you know, you don't go, oh, I thought that was only one movement point and I've accidentally run two. You just don't do that because there's like big, clear blue and yellow lines. Like, this <laughs> it is stops you zone. from doing it anyway. If you don't have enough, it just. Yeah. It's like, yeah, no, nope, you can't do that. Yeah, but it's even like, you know, you, if you do mess up, it's going to be because you drastically slipped on the thumbstick or something. And that's going to be really <laughs> rare, you know. So I don't know. It was they, they actually improved the formula in so many ways. Yeah. And uh, I was amazed because they made the 2012 version of, of XCOM um, kind of my new favorite game. Like for years, I would go back and play the original XCOM. And now I don't. Now I go back and play the 2012 XCOM because it, it so perfectly captures the spirit of the original, um, but just fixes so much of it. And obviously now, you know, I'm much more heavily involved in the world of, of board games and looking to board games for inspiration. And uh, the key thing about the 2012 version of XCOM is it's just one of the most elegant pieces of game design. It just it just trims away all of the fat and all of the pointless yeah. fluff that video games often get uh, lugged with simply because they can. There's, there's a tendency in games to be like, well, we can leave this in because the computer will work it out for you. And that's not a good way to think of it. You know, it's like... It's just not a good approach, I don't think. And so, yeah, I, I find it like the original game was um, what kind of really inspired me that the games could be both deep and thematic and have this incredible atmosphere and theme and sense of story taking place, even though the story itself was very light. Um, but the original was um, very inspirational to me in terms of game design, in terms of understanding um, that actually games being simpler is often a better thing. And I think that's, that's a conversation that often, uh, will make idiots turn up their nose. Um, but it's fine because, you know, we don't idiots. listen to those people. Well, it's just, just <laughs> if you don't understand the idea that making something simpler might be better then like, yeah. I just, it's a waste of time talking to them, you know? Yeah. Well, fair enough. So we're going to move on to your next chronological order game. Uh, so let's listen to some music. next game in your list matt 
is developed by Black Isle Studios and published by Interplay Entertainment. It was directed by both Chris Avalon uh, and Obsidian Entertainment's new uh, CEO, uh, Fergus Urquhart. It released for PC on December 12th of 1999 worldwide, and it takes place in the multiverse of the Planescape, which was originally a Dungeons & Dragons campaign setting. Uh, The uh, single-player story-driven RPG where players take on the role of the Nameless One, an immortal being who has lived through multiple lives but continues to forget each one. It's Planescape Torment. Matt, why is Planescape Torment the next game in your list? This is very, very good. I mean, I'm kind of parking (laughs) my car right in the centre of Cliché City here, I'm aware, because I know that it's one of those things that anyone... Uh, who's worth their wordy salt always bangs on about uh, anyone who played rpgs on pc in the 90s (laughs) it was just very special and you know i think i i probably devoted more time playing fallout 2 fallout 2 blew me away um and it was the first kind of game of that type that i got really really into yeah and i loved it so much but planescape stuck with me um for a number of reasons uh, mainly because Fallout 2 was was pastiche. It was a uh, it was a lot of fun, but it was just packed full of jokes and film references and um and yeah, it was it was cool, but it was it was very much to begin with a kind of spoof in some regards, which is why I'm amazed that they're still making them and taking themselves a bit seriously because it's like what you're building, you're trying to build a castle on the foundation of a bouncy castle, and it's just weird. <laughs> um, but anyway, um. Planescape Torment for me uh, was a real game changer in terms of what I, what games could be uh, for me. It had so much writing in it, about 500,000 words. And at the time, I thought it was amazing. I don't know if it was. It's one of these difficult things. It's like, you know, I have to remember with Planescape Torment that when I was playing it, I was a teenager. And so a lot of the stuff in that was my first exposure to stuff like philosophy ideas. You know, it had a lot of... Um, Again, a lot of rehashed stuff, like none of it was all like based on real world stuff. And actually, you know, Chris Avalon, he is the master of this. You know, he openly says that what he does is he's constantly absorbing stuff. He's constantly consuming media, which I think is a really fascinating approach to creativity because I sometimes feel like the opposite of that. I sometimes feel like, um, should you be spending too much time consuming things? Because then sometimes you're just rehashing. But he consumes at such an alarming rate that he's able to piece together things in really fascinating ways. Um, and actually, as somebody who doesn't have time to, to consume many things, it's lovely to be able to just sort of jump in and get this smorgasbord of ideas that's been mashed together based on this, this banquet of stuff he's constantly guzzing down. But uh, Planescape was just packed full of stories and ideas. And it's one of those games that whenever you meet somebody, I, less these days because I've just had these conversations so many times, but especially throughout my late teens and uh, early 20s, whenever you met somebody else who, who'd played this game and loved it, it was just overwhelming. You just you just lose yourself in conversations for hours with strangers. It's really, it's really funny you say everything. that. It's really funny that you say that, actually, because when I met my girlfriend um, a couple of years ago, um, I, she was asking, like, what do, what do you like? I was like, you know, I like playing video games. Do you like video games? She was like, kind of. Like, I like, like playing Pokemon or, like, Dragon Age or Mass Effect, and they're kind of, like, the only titles she really plays. But she's like, I always remember this one game that had, like, a big blue face on it. And it was for PC, and I was like, oh, "Yeah, Planescape Torment." And she was like, "Yeah, it's really good, amazing stories." And she reads; she's an avid reader of books and fantasy and that kind of thing. So to have the kind of praise from someone who reads an immense amount of fantasy books to be like, "No, that that game was incredible in terms of storytelling." Um, and then, obviously, as you said, sp- spoke for hours about this this wonderful oh, yeah. game. I mean, it's 
the thing is, we are, always have people talking about creating rich digital worlds, rich worlds, and they're not. Like, you know, that's the thing with GTA. They always say, oh, it's like a living, breathing world. It's like, no, it fucking isn't. It's, it's a world full of people uh, saying amusing one-liners when you walk past them. Um, it's entirely the fucking opposite of a fucking living, breathing world. Um, but Planescape was, and Planescape had just this incredible density of ideas and people that are, it's one of the few games where I can almost walk around the map in my head and I can tell you like what was where everything was and what I can't remember the names, but I'd be like, I'll tell you all the things that happened, all the stories and all the people. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was so amazingly densely packed that I just played it so many times because it was also one of those era of games where you would only be able to unlock certain conversations and options based on what you've done and based on your statistics and based on your affiliations and all sorts of things. And it would mean sometimes you'd have like this little building with a person in it that didn't appear to be anything or do anything. And you'd be like, what is that? Like, it was always like, you know, you, you might not be till your fourth or fifth playthrough that you work out what that was about. Like, why is this old man? Like, what does he do? Like, what's what's the point in him? Because it felt like everybody had something going on. And it's very much one of those beautiful games as well, where it's just a weird world of liars and distrust and and, and nobody is what they appear to be. And it's and, perfect. And you don't even know the character you're playing, whether no. he is one of those. Exactly. It, it's an I mean, incredible it's... game that hides so much from you and reveals it in such small snippets that gradually get bigger and bigger. And, and by the end, you're like, oh, my God god what just yeah, happened exactly i mean it, i mean also it's yeah a brilliant narrative technique of the fact that you have a character who is an amnesiac oh yeah well done video games but also <laughs> an amnesiac who's had multiple lives and when you meet people it's not just a case of the fact that people know who you are but you don't know who they are they know who you were at one point and you don't know who that was and it means you have it's a game where you mentally start mapping out all of the different versions of yourself that have been around for the last 50 years or so in terms of like people who they might have met at some point and it has some incredible little twists about like how many versions of you there were and who they were and like yeah. they don't have names or anything like you just have to kind of like map them out in your own head so it's a beautiful storytelling technique of having you discovering uh who you are alongside the actual characters but also i just felt like um it's the perfect analogy for this sort of sprawling city and in, in, in perhaps a bit of a cynical way but it just um but not entirely, because really the city of of walls, you know, Sigil, this, this, this growing, evolving city where things move around. And um, it's also this hub between all these different worlds and all these different portals and all sorts of strange creatures and entities living there. And has this lovely kind of crazy urban thing of having all these market stalls and strange trinkets and magical wonders and and confusion but then are with it liars cheats people who cannot be trusted people who want things from you machinations but overall it's all wrapped together with this constant sense of wonder like you really do feel like in most rpgs when you turn up in a city that's the point where i kind of sigh a bit because it feels like that's the sort of thing they have to put in so they can say to gamers yeah it's got massive cities in it that'll take you like 20 hours to explore yeah whereas really the wonderful thing about planescape was exploration was a joy it wasn't just like this sort of oh god there's so many things to do here it's going to take me ages it was like what's going to be next door is it going to be a man just self-immolating permanently who's been here hundreds of years or is it going to be like a shape-shifting demon who wants to play dice or something you know it's like it's one of those things that you were talking about earlier uh, with xcom 
cutting the fat off and making it simple they had to tell a story and they had a great story and how do you do that without displaying hundreds and hundreds of weird text boxes or story motifs you know give the player a reason to go around talking to these people involving them in the world to be fair, mechanically, it wasn't great. Like, it was mostly just you spending all of your time reading a small text box at the bottom. <laughs> I mean, kind <laughs> of like not in a sort of... Ah, it's hard to explain. Uh, not sort of just like mashing A to get through some diatribe dialogue for an NPC who maybe has like an item or something. It's Yeah. I went to that guy because he had this incredible story that spans generations and and he's just hidden away in this house that I could have easily missed. It gives you a sense of exploration and the want to go do that. Absolutely. And I think also it does what it did was it, it gave you as a player a really clear reason to always care. You know, a lot of games just do this thing of being like, yeah. Oh, your girlfriend's been kidnapped. And it's like, it's not my fucking girlfriend, all right? <laughs> it's the girlfriend <laughs> of this guy who I don't know, really. And you know, it's just that motivation is always like in video games, something that a lot of them get wrong. But by having this thing of the fact that at any point, any story in that game could suddenly become actually about you, um, without warning was just so exciting and like really mind-blowing you could just be like halfway down this mad old tunnel in this weird trap-filled maze and then suddenly discover that actually this is you like you did this like 40 years ago (laughs) and um i mean that's just such a great way to keep people interested of basically being like really planescape was the story of trying to work out who your character was and what they're about um and also the fact that you know it was still it did well in that era of being like a lot of times when people go back and play it now they go yeah but it's that weird complex press space bar to pause it and then do magic spells and kill enemies and it still has that kind of like old era of combat from games like Baldur's Gate 2 and stuff which really you know close made the list Baldur's Gate 2 I loved amazingly for a lot of the same reasons but doesn't quite cut it but it it got around that by being like well yeah but how do you level up in this game how do you actually get more powerful and enjoy this uh, D&D system of combat more and the answer was (laughs) through good conversations if you had a really valuable conversation it'd be like here you are have 20,000 experience it would just give you like huge sums just for advancing the story so i think it it did a good job of actually like kind of um even getting on board that sort of player the sort of player who just wanted to be like badass um it it, it helps to do that but i think again it was it was inspirational for me um just because you know i think that era 1999 2000 was very much like a a real golden age for video games and uh, i think that era of of games having reached their limitation in terms of what they could do visually and just going, all right, well, we'll have nice graphics and loads of great words. And that's, you know, Fallout 2, uh, Baldur's Gate 2, uh, Planescape Torment, I think just some incredible games. Yeah. Uh, still such fond memories of them. And in terms of the worlds they were able to create and the sensations that they were able to spark off in me. And then uh, we had years of, of 3D graphics and 3D storytelling and third-person action games and and people always talking about narrative. And it was kind of great because... It kept this fire in me of being like, no, this is bullshit. Like we've we've and when everyone talked about narrative and games being amazing, it's like, no, um, <laughs> no, like it was better when we couldn't show it, because as soon as we could show it, players wanted to see it. And then if players have to see it, you have to visualize it. And then, oh, God, are we actually going to visualize all this? We haven't got the money to do all that. So we're not going to do it. And uh, that allowed to change two things. It changed that A, you didn't have such complex sprawling plots and such interesting little moments of loving narrative just there because they were lovely. Things didn't make the cut a lot of time. Things had to be more streamlined. And also things became a lot less adult. You know, Um, you had in 
in games like Planescape Torment and in games like Fallout 2, some incredibly dark graphic ideas and imagery. But because it was just writing, it kind of wasn't a problem. I think yeah. at this point, like these games went under the the radar in terms of censorship and stuff. And uh, you know, I was interested. I was I was introduced as a child playing Fallout 2 to lots of interesting concepts like fluffing. Uh, when I was about <laughs> nine or ten, like, you know, that box didn't have a great big whopping eighteen on it. But to be fair, it should have done. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I'm glad it didn't. I had a great time. But <laughs> yeah, for me, it was one of those things of being like a lot of the time the industry tends to just constantly keep huffing its own fumes in terms of what everyone thinks is cool right now and for me for a very long time it was like no like what we need to aspire to is is when we can have this fidelity um but also have this quality that we've lost and it felt like for a long time we just lost it but actually it's quite exciting at the moment because it feels like now um again in terms of visual fidelity people are getting a bit more settled and a bit more like trying to push on that front and now we're starting to see this this re-emergence of narrative coming back and hopefully it'll continue fantastic well we're going to move on to your next game which is a complete change from what you chose in terms of the reasons for planescape torment and why it was so great and so let's listen to some music and go straight into it Okay, Matt, so before we move on to your next game, um, we have the sort of deserted island selection section, which is a terrible alliteration. Um, basically, because for the purpose of the show, you have to be stranded uh, on a desert mm-hmm. island or a deserted place. I thought I'd make it a little bit more fun where you kind of get to choose the place you're deserted from. So like a virtual desertion and it has to be somewhere from video games so last week i had nina freeman uh who works at fulbright and developer of the game sybil uh she chose besaid island from final fantasy 10 and 10 2 um, oh yeah 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 and uh your regular features counterpart gav murphy a couple of weeks ago he chose the pinata island from viva pinata that's so, a good one <laughs> i don't think that, i could live there it'd be way too stressful um, <laughs> trying to tend to all those gardens watching the things you love die um <laughs> so is there something that comes to your head where would you like to be deserted we've had uh who have we had we've had and andy kelly chose the nostromo from alien isolation of course uh, he bloody did <laughs> <laughs> i love andy but that doesn't surprise me um I wouldn't really, uh. yeah so is there anything that sticks oh in your head we had danny o'dwyer danny obviously chose the island of the witness huh oh, that would infuriate me as well I'm just trying to think, where would I go? Where would I be? I don't know. I never think of them as places. I always think of them as being like um, 
kind of like I think the one world I've always liked the idea of being in. If I had to be in one video game world, I always like the idea of being in Pokemon because I think it's just such a bright and hopeful place where you just go on bicycle rides and, <laughs> and uh, catching and catching discover monsters. things and catch things, and train up your friends. That's and, a yeah. that's a, that's a really good answer. I I think I would potentially think about yeah. So I think uh, what's the what was the what was the road? I think it was one of the routes. I think I'd, I'd be quite content just riding a bicycle around on the the, the road to Viridian City or something like okay. you know just just. Riding around next to some some nice uh, nice grass. <laughs> it's a big tall grass <laughs> on a really really fast bicycle. Yes. Okay. So the world of Pokemon then, uh, Kanto, Johto, and all those places. Just you... the original one. Like, let's not mess about. <laughs> okay. So Kanto. So Kanto. So... I don't need to go to Duravision City. <laughs> uh, you know, just the original place was great. <laughs> fair enough so yeah. <laughs> so the world of kanto it is um so in this world of kanto while catching pokemon and riding on your bike you have eight games to play and one of them happens to have been developed by the sonic team and published by sega uh, it was produced by sonic creator himself yuji naka for the sega dreamcast it was re uh originally released in japan uh in December of 2000, and then it came to the West in January of 2001, with version 2.0 of the game being released a few months later. Unlike previous games in this series, this entry was an MMO action RPG that featured a real-time hack-and-slash type gameplay instead of the more traditional turn-based system that the fans were used to. Players could meet, chat, and take up quests together online. Uh, it was a very co big commercial success for Sega, and it was praised by critics for its gameplay and its graphics. It's Fantasy Star Online. It is, and it's just such a game. Um, it was deeply formative for me for a number of reasons. Uh, I guess largely because it's clearly a 7 out of 10, but I just adore it, uh, and I think that's <laughs> that's been true of lots of things over the years. It's why I'm kind of glad that I don't really review stuff anymore <laughs> because uh, really the reviewing system doesn't make any sense um, because it, most people who review stuff will know that stuff that's a 9 or an 8, the stuff that's a 9 is just usually like often just, just somehow less interesting like i don't know it's weird like you know it's really good and as as i said before there is sort of a tried and tested formula with a lot of video games now and many eights well, nines sort of follow the same trends and that's well, why the thing those is you're, games you're not if you're if you're a good reviewer you're not really reviewing for yourself um you're reviewing for the publication and uh, that's that's kind of the approach and so often it means you'll play something and you kind of go this isn't for me but it's very good um and and that's really that's the skill of being a good games critic a games reviewer is to know whether something is good or not not whether or not you like it uh which i think is something that people often forget on both sides of the fence but um yeah like i think for me fantasy star online again it was i guess it's one of the, the things that a reminder of why i'm still like doing this stuff um because there comes a point where most people tap out, you know, with games, they'd sort of go, oh, I'm done with it now. Like you have your moment of excitement, but I've had lots of them. You know, I had the sheer excitement of getting a, a Mega Drive for Christmas when I was nine. Between me, and my, me and my brother got it as a joint Christmas present with the first <laughs> Sonic and Robocod, uh, James Pond 2 Robocod. And to this day, I had, I had tons more fun with Robocod than I did with the first Sonic game. I think it's a better game. It's but really anyway. funny. It's like when I think back to uh, when I really hardcore got into games, which was around the N64, I had much more fun playing Snowboard Kids or this really crappy racer called Scars over playing Ocarina of Time over and over again. Those Snowboard kind of... Kids yes. was fantastic. In fact, Rich McCormick, who uh, used to be 
uh, PC gamer. He he's a big snowboard kids fan. I am. So he, I'm giving both you and Rich a, a virtual high five right now. Snowboard kids, man. I used to have. Yeah, used to play so that a good, lot. fantastic. But it game. looked like junk that game. Like, it did. I remember when my, it looked my, awful. my mate had it. I was like, "What the fuck are you playing?" And then we started <laughs> playing it, and I'm like, oh, "This game it's with so the stupid kids with big noses yep. and snowmen." It's Mario Kart on snow. It's amazing. It's it's so it's good. genuinely brilliant. But to, but um, to get but, back on Final Fantasy, yeah, <laughs> Fantasy Star Online, not Star Final Fantasy. So it was one of those things where. Uh, I must have been coming close to finishing school and I'd had N64 for a while. And I remember my mate, uh, Sean, again, Sean Bell came around for like a sleepover one night and he brought his uh, his chipped Dreamcast. I hope I'm not getting him in trouble now. Oh, oh naughty. Oh, but no. he had a chipped Dreamcast with like, you know, a biro so you could open it up. Yeah. And he had um, a bunch of weird Japanese games that you could play, like a, a kind of a, a bus driving simulator, which back then, like now, we're all like, oh, of course you're playing a bus simulator. But back then, it was just one of the weirdest things I'd ever seen in my life. Um, so he was showing off a lot of these amazing games, and uh, I was just blown away by how good games looked on the Dreamcast. I just sat there. Um, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, at the time, it was a very powerful console. Like, it was, in many regards, better than the PlayStation 2. It just died. Um, but... Uh, actually, was it the PlayStation Two that was competing with? I can't yeah, it even was, remember. It was moving into that space. It was. Yeah, I can't. Was I think PlayStation, like two, PlayStation Two came out. Two thousand one era where the Dreamcast died and the PlayStation Two just shot off. That's it. Yeah. So I think when the PlayStation, yeah, I think PlayStation Two was a bit later. But anyway, um, I just never seen anything like it. It was stunning. Like the games looked incredible, and um, the one game which really just immediately just like I I had such strong memories of was when he showed me um started playing some some pso um okay so and... this was the japanese version yep this was no actually no actually you know i don't remember it okay. may have been it may not have been but he was playing pso and it just looked incredible and i remember he was playing as a human uh male hunter i think so you know he had a big uh glowing red like double-handed sword because it's kind of like a cross between lightsaber and a, a kind of proper great sword <laughs> and he was messing up robots in uh the mines level which is uh unusually the mines you would think it would be all caves and stuff but it was actually all all robots if i remember correctly if it was called mines and it was the third zone and um God, yeah, just the atmosphere of this place and just the designs of these robot enemies. It was just like viewing into another world. The fact it looked incredible. It had this incredible sound design, incredible music. And at this point, this was like around the era where we still thought that, quite rightly at this point, that The Matrix was the coolest thing ever made. 1999, yeah. Probably the coolest thing that would ever be made. Um, It was around that era. So the (laughs) fact that he had this this cool guy with a laser broadsword thing and a... cool silver hair and a silver outfit and i was just like this is so cool and i remember i really wanted to have a go on it uh but he wouldn't let me uh because and this is hilarious yeah i'm sure he'd laugh about this in retrospect as well (laughs) he said that like because it was an rpg he wanted to like when he was playing his character he wanted to know that like he'd done all of it he'd made all of the progress himself so the idea of me like having a go and killing a few enemies would have like, spoiled it for him. What a snotty which, little kid. Which is like, I mean, we were, but the thing is, like, I say that, but me and Sean were both equally snotty little likes at this point. So I'm sure I was just as bad in other regards. But in retrospect, that's like, what? Come on, let me kill a robot. But um, no, from that point onwards, I was just, I was so enamored by this game, by the look of it. And um, Was this like your first then... online 
console experience as well. Yeah, it was. I mean, this wasn't even online at this point. We were playing it offline because okay, it was yeah. my house. But um, I remember at this age, I must have been about 17, I guess, 16, 17. I had, I had some money. I had a, I had a summer job. And um, it was my first time of buying into a dead console. And I loved it because um, the Dreamcast was doing badly. And it meant that I just, they were just basically slashing the prices on the Sega store where, you know, the official store, which usually is a place where you do not go if you want any kind of bargain. But everything was so cheap that I bought a console and I bought all these games. I bought Jet Set Radio. I bought Sonic Adventure 2. I bought um, Fantasy Star Online. Uh, I think, you know, for my sins, I probably bought Crazy Taxi. Uh, you know, I'm, hey, I'll go to hell Crazy for that. Crazy Taxi is a good game. It's like it's Snowboard nice. Kids. It's bad. They I get fit. it. I they get fit. it. But it's bad. <laughs> I mean, I've heard so many times why it's good, and I kind of get that. But like, don't don't, don't you have dreams oh about yeah, 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 over and over again? You see, I, I really hated I, the Offspring as well. I, 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 as well. I hate that song so much. And you know, <laughs> that kind that of game. music was was the antithesis of what I was into. And you know what it's like now as an adult, I'm different, and I appreciate that people like different music, and I'm cool with that. But when it gets to things like the Offspring or Sun Forty One, it still just drills straight through to my heart, and my heart says, "Get fucked," because <laughs> it's just that era, you know, that fiery yeah. era of no, I listen to this, you listen to this, which means I hate it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I got an amazing selection of these brilliant games for nothing. Yeah. Skies of Arcadia. Yes, Fuck. I I um, actually bought Skies of Arcadia about a year ago with this huge Dreamcast. I bought a Dreamcast collection off eBay, and it was only thirty pounds. And it, it had this pristine Dreamcast with two controllers, and it had Skies of Arcadia, Shenmue, Crazy Taxi, uh, Power Stone, and I was like, "This is immense!" <laughs> so, yeah, it's so good. And uh, I, you know, I uh, was still using fifty six K modem, so I had to like. Uh, sneakily unplug the main phone to play on it and it meant often playing it really late at night i'd like Ooh. sneak the cable all the way downstairs because no one's gonna get phone calls past midnight and i just stay up all night like or really late uh, and because you actually had to because uh, didn't have voice communications then you actually had to type out stuff i had the dreamcast keyboard which was just like a pc keyboard that you plugged into your dreamcast yeah. in addition to the controller and i got really good at playing the game with one hand whilst typing with the other hand um while sitting in lying in bed basically um <laughs> but i don't know it was just really formative like in terms of having that online experience and that online trust you know of having like you, you when you traded items with each other you just had to drop them on the floor in the lobby oh and yeah. it just meant that like I forgot about that it meant that like if you had somebody unscrupulous in your game and often you did because they were just public games a lot of the time um you know somebody might just nick your stuff and yeah and also the fact that it was just like pure grinding like you just played the same four areas over and over again yeah. on increasingly difficult difficulty levels um but it never gated you from doing that and what i loved about it was it was such a simple system pso it was not a complicated game but because it didn't gate you you could always be pushing your luck and it meant that the more you played it you started to like really get a strong feel for the tiny tells of everything and um, this weird clunky combat system could really be manipulated so that you could basically be like hitting enemies and then dodging out the way and hitting enemies and then dodging out the way and corralling enemies around like a mad shepherd so you could get them all in one spot and then hit them all at once. And um, there was a, a really strong element of risk reward and the fact that if you got good enough for that game, you could be playing on a level of difficulty where you could get one hitted by anything and you'd be dead. Um, but you just wouldn't get hit because you'd just be able to manipulate the room and I make it sound here like now it was like Devil May Cry and it wasn't because the combat system was so basic, but uh, <laughs> it was good. It was satisfying. The, the, the timing of the swings and the sounds and everything just felt nice. And um, 
I played that game so much. I played it online for a long time, but then I actually got it on the the GameCube later, and I bought all of the different GameCube adapters for the internet because there were more. There was two of them, I think. I bought. Did you I did you get both. hold of that really rare GameCube controller that had the keyboard in the middle? Of no, the I didn't. Two sides? Well, I didn't because I spent a fortune on trying to get my GameCube online. <laughs> Could never get it to work with any oh, of the no. stuff. Um, oh, but it, no. I still, I still played um, my Hucast uh, robot dude uh, with a badass saber that I found really lucky drop. I played with that for about five hundred hours, just on my own, just oh, offline. My Lord, wow! Um, I once spent a day, just twelve hours, just going through ruins, just trying to find a rare drop that I knew was like a one in a thousand thing. It was a, I, it's one of those weird games, and there've been very few like it that was just I found to be incredibly relaxing and therapeutic. And it's one of the few games that I know like the back of my hand um it's just it's i i actually i people think i'm joking when i say this but at the point at which i was really playing it a lot i could play that game with my eyes closed like i can literally play it with my eyes closed just because i recognize the sound the audio cues of yeah. when you've locked onto an enemy and when an enemy is locked onto you when an enemy's about to hit you that i could play without being able to see anything and i could visualize in my head what was going on um and even with like being able to like know when that you're in the direction and there's a door ahead of you and stuff, so I could play for like a like, good five minutes without looking at, with my eyes fully closed, which is mad. But yes. um, <laughs> I, I think for me it was, um, yeah, it was one of those games that like reminded me not to be snobby, really, in the way of it's just it was pure style over substance, and there was so much about it that was a bit a bit crap. Uh, and I know from a critical perspective that, that game is not great. Well, um, uh, speaking of that, then. Um... Just before we move on quickly to what your next game is, uh, obviously the new game, the new Fantasy Star Online, uh, I forget what the name is. I, I don't think it's Fantasy Star Online 2, is it called that? Um, but it's only been released here in Japan for the PlayStation mm-hmm. Vita. Are you a little disappointed that you didn't get to see it here? Or do you reckon it's just one of those games that now your childlike or teenage-like forgiveness for average games... You wouldn't be able to overcome that. You know, I've, I've played a lot of the Fantasy Star things over the years. Fantasy Star World, I think it was called, um, was one of them. And they've all just been pretty bad. And uh, The thing is, I think it was like the original was bad, but it had some real magic to it um, that was, it again, like... huge uh, communities in America. I remember that game was so popular in America. Again, it conjured up an incredible sense of of atmosphere and place like the little uh, space station where you did all of your shopping and mission stuff just ah oh, just thinking about the music when you're walking around there just brings back chills of it just being like it was just such a cool place and even exploring raggle um you know it's just going down to these locations they just felt like really they were very repetitive but they felt like real places and uh, the music in that game yeah, it was one of those games where there was nothing going on, but tonally it just nailed it somehow and made you feel like a cool badass and made the enemies feel dangerous and exciting and um and yeah, it it was just it was just incredible. And actually there's there's been a ton of stuff since that has been almost the same, but not quite. The only thing recently I've played which has managed to scratch that similar inch is Monster Hunter. Um I really love Monster Hunter 4 because okay. it does it does. Yeah, I can sort of see all, I can, Yeah, I can see the sort of similar similarities, the sort of barren areas with uh with things that you can gather and that kind of thing and essentially just aiming for your target which is these monsters that you want stuff from yeah I can sort of yeah and also it's the fact that you know in, in fantasy star online you were constantly leveling up and finding new yeah. gear and getting gear that you couldn't use there that's different in monster Hunter. you don't level up you do get new gear but really as is in both of those things 
the the numbers are irrelevant. Like, actually, you get better at the game because you're better at it. Like, my 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 proudest achievement of playing PSO was when I I often would like almost. Uh, I guess it's kind of the equivalent now of one browing, you know, of like what people used to do, what people do with Dark Souls. But what I used to do with PSO is I just start a new character and just start a run and see how far I could get without going back. Um, and I managed once to, um, in one run without dying, um, get to the end of Caves, the third level. No, not Caves, Caves was the second level, sorry, Mines, yeah. Okay. I got to the end of Mines. So I killed Volopt, who is the robot uh, guy. And I got to the end of that. And I think I was like level eight or something by the time I got there. Yeah. Um, but it was it was the fact that I'd managed to kill. Actually, the, the third boss was not that difficult. It was the second boss. The boss in the caves was a nightmare. This big bloody fishy snake thing that fired out like horrible, like shmup style waves of bullets that were really hard to evade. But I managed to do that when I was like level five or something, or like level six. And yeah, that was that's the sort of thing where like I was amazed that I actually managed to from start to finish, without going back for any items, without going back at all, just went right from the start all the way to the end of the third zone and then got to the you know, ruins and it was impossible because I was only like level <laughs> nine or ten or something. But, uh, but yeah, that was, uh, that, was, that was when I hit my peak of being like, you are too good at this game. You need to go out and do something else. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I imagine that's when you happen to come on to your next game, I guess, which is a game I have no idea about. So I'm looking forward to you explaining this game to me. So let's listen to some music and then you can tell me all about it. Okay, so the next game on your list, Matt, I'm ashamed I don't know about. Um, quirky Japanese games are were, for a long time, my forte. So uh, this was a game developed by Capcom's Studio 3 team for the PlayStation 2, and it was originally released in the West on the 15th of December, 2003. It's a survival horror game that featured CGI graphics based on the Japanese anime of the same name. Mm-hmm. As the player, you must navigate a hotel retrieving bottles of souls, which the hotel guests have been carrying. It received pretty average reviews from critics, um, but it's Gregory Horror Show. Matt, yeah. please tell me, what, what is this game? What is it all about? And why <laughs> is it on your list? Oh, well, I think it's it was a tough one with this because there was lots of games of this area that, that could have gone in this space. Um, uh, I thought I'd just spice it up with something a bit odd because uh, I've already got PSO and I can just play that forever. So I'm fine. Um yeah, Gregory Horror Show was just a really strange game about being trapped in a hotel with lots of very odd, colourful, frightening characters. Um, and you had to steal their souls so that you could leave. The idea was, you know, the only way you could get out is by getting their souls uh, because they were being requested by death, 
who was a cheery New Yorker version of death wearing a Swedish hat. <laughs> uh, well, a hat with a Swedish flag on it. So it was just wonderfully odd. And I think probably I wasn't familiar with the, the Japanese TV series of the same name. And I think if I had been, I probably would have enjoyed it a lot less. But just as a method of discovery, it was an incredible game, just having these, these wonderful, odd, often, I'd say, quite frightening characters popping up in this stupid, childlike game. Um, but I think for me, like the reason I've chosen this is because it was quite, uh, again, influential in, in its own way of, of being a period when I, I started to actually move from being... Um, I guess it was when I first started moving from being just somebody who was just consuming games to being somebody who was consuming games with more of an eye to uh, more of a direction being given to me from the media in terms of uh, games media. Um, I think it was for my sins. I can't remember the names of so many of the mags I used to read, unfortunately, because I kept picking games magazines, which would go under after about three or four months. The ones <laughs> I, I, liked I imagine one more. of them was uh, Keith Stewart's Dreamcast magazine. Then. <laughs> Quite possibly. I think, to be honest, most of the Dreamcast mags had gone out of print by the time I bought one. Oh. I really was a very late adopter. But hey, that's fine. Like People always get really miffed when consoles go under, but it's like... Don't worry about it. Hey, I absolutely fucking adore my Wii U, and I'm I'm living a renaissance over here, really, with all these cheap Wii U games. That's for sure. Precisely, like just even if you bought the hardware at a bad time and you got kind of shafted on that, dude, for 150 like... quid uh, and getting Splatoon and Mario Kart, it's like that is 150 pounds worth of gold. It's exactly provides so much. I mean, hours if you buy it late, it's so cheap. If you buy it late, brilliant, but. Even if you buy it early, just just love the fact that you're going to be able to really cheaply go around and snap up a complete collection of something and just keep it. You know, yeah. And then in years' time, after all the dust blows over, just like the Dreamcast, it'll be revered as a good console and one that everyone (laughs) fondly remembers. (laughs) Yeah, quite possibly. But um, at this point, I was uh, really getting into like you know reading games mags in a way I hadn't done before. Okay. Um. Because for a long period, I was kind of a lot of the stuff I liked was was much more inspired by by my mate Sean, who I went to school with, and he would read loads of games mags. And I kind of what um, I found out about was very much informed by him. So actually, a lot of a lot of the great classics I got into, I have, have him to think thank for that. But um, there was a point, and it was the PlayStation Two was kind of a golden era for it, where um, there were just so many wonderful, strange gems, and it became it felt like an era where you could. You could appreciate games like a record collector, you know, my, of going around and uh, going to the game shops and, and looking through the collection of what they had there and looking at what they had in second hand and finding some real gems. Yeah. Um, and it would be exciting because you go and they'd find they had one copy of one really cool thing and you'd be like, oh, oh my God, I'm having this. Um, or like sometimes you take the one copy to the counter and they couldn't find the disc and you were like, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it was it was an exciting period for that. And I think it wasn't just the, the PlayStation 2. I think it was across the board. Like gamers maybe was just in a, an interesting era. I remember there were like some amazing stuff on the Game Boy Advance uh, had a lot of uh, really exciting innovation and weird things. Superb was it Boktai? Boktai? Was it called Boktai? It was a... I don't a know. top-down isometric action game about hunting vampires that actually had a sun sensor in the cartridge so that oh, you have oh, to... I, I, you're talking about um, Hideo Kojima's off. game. Yeah. Yeah, oh, uh, something like that. It's like Sundial or something. Um, oh, it may have been called something different. I think over in the UK it was called, I don't know. It's, um, um, yeah, it had like a, like a solar panel built into the cartridge. Yeah. My um, head's saying, bok, saying Boktai. Boktai. Boktai is in Yeah, B-O-K. the sun is in your hand. Yeah, and that was just like, there was just lots of weird stuff going on. And uh, 
I think at that point, for somebody who'd been playing games for many years, uh, I wasn't bored with them, but I was definitely getting to the point where I was looking for more interesting things. And the yeah. PlayStation 2 was a console which really delivered of having just tons of strange, interesting little games. So um, many games. So many. Like, And it was just a great period of discovery and just going and uh, buying cheap things and looking for oddities. And uh, I was, yeah, became very much informed in this sea of stuff um, by the media and by mags and I think it was a review in maybe PSM magazine, uh, which was, a, I think, an unofficial future mag for uh, for PlayStation 2 uh, that somebody, you know, just reviews Gregory Horror Show and said it was great. And I thought it sounded fantastic. I wasn't into uh, uh, survival horror stuff at all. Because um, the graphics look kind of cutesy. Is it oh, they actually do. scary? Yeah. Is it? It's yeah. a survival horror, but is it scary? Can you yeah. overcome the graphics? Oh, yeah. God, it's scary. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's cute as hell, sure. But like one of the first characters you you meet is a giant pink dinosaur walking around with a gigantic syringe who's talking about wanting to stab you with it in a way which is really overtly sexual and odd and is clearly getting off at the idea of, of stabbing people with her giant syringe. It's weird <laughs> shit. And it also had a character in it called the Lost Doll, um, which was this... Um, a little girl who was crying about having lost her dolly. Um, and then and then when you went near her, she'd just say, yeah, where's my dolly? Where's my dolly? And then she'd suddenly turn around and her head would spin 180 like, and she would have a different face on the back of her head, which was terrifying. And she'd say, you've got it. And then she'd be chasing after you because you'd stolen her dolly. I'm and out. it was a weird thing of I'm it out. being like... <laughs> she was the doll she was looking for her doll but she was the doll and it was the other half of her head was the doll and fuck it was just odd i remember actually being so frightened by that character i had to look up on faq just so i could finish her section (laughs) but also it was this fascinating game and the fact that it was kind of survival horror but not really and the fact that really it was a bit like majora's mask in the fact that all of these characters had daily routines so they would go and do different things yeah. at different times of the day. And their souls that you had to steal or were all in jars somewhere. And you had to find out where they kept their soul by okay. basically following them around and listening to them. And you had this thing where you'd have to like stand next to a door and then peek through the keyhole. And then like by doing so, you then watch these characters talking to each other in private or talking to themselves in private. And um, But while you were doing that, like there was a chance that time would carry on. There's a chance that another character who's looking for you walking down the corridor might find you just peeking through a door and you have to run away from them. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really strange PS2 game. It also just had a finale, had an ending, which just blew my mind, had a really clever little narrative spin, which was just like, oh my God, this is, this is genius um, in a really dark way. Um, I'll put in a spoiler warning now, just in case anyone's going to go and check it out. It's all the PlayStation 2 game, but just you've had your warning now. Come back in about a minute. But the way it ended was you collected all these souls and then you escaped from the hotel. And on the way out, you set the fire to the hotel by accident or something. The, the hotel was on fire and it was burning to the ground. And then it had this lovely little like sort of like cut scene where it's like talks about you running away from the hotel and leaving it burning. And the hotel burns to the ground. And then... Um, and then has this thing like with this narrating voice saying, but of course, like, you know, uh, you ran away from it for a while and you managed to go back to your normal life. But uh, then the same problems uh, that have brought you here in the first place started to come back and you found that you couldn't deal with it. So you had to come back to the hotel and you just watch this hotel being reformed. And Gregory, the weird rat thing who introduces you again, saying, come in, come in. And it's like this idea of being like, oh, 
this mad fucking weird hotel full of strange characters is all in your head and you are just somebody who's lost their mind and created it as a way of coping with reality. And wow. and even if you escape and burn it down, your head rebuilds it because you know what? Uh, the, the world you live in, as whoever the hell you are, is worse than this. So, and I was just like... It's the game version what? of <laughs> Eagles' Hotel California. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And... I don't know. I mean, for me, uh, it's the game that I always remember. I actually have two copies of it on the PlayStation 2 or something because <laughs> I was that worried about losing it because I just, I don't know, like that era of discovery for me was so exciting and just, uh, and being able to just, just find so many gems and yeah. I played so many of them. Um, it got me really excited about, about games again. And I think um, that was before I went to university and then didn't play games for quite a while. But I think it was, it was having that, that last surge before I went off that was enough to keep me excited and interested when I eventually came back to it later. Fantastic. So we're going to move on to your next game, which is also a survival horror game. And uh, it's going to be the third time this game is featured on the show, which makes it so far the most chosen game so far for the deserted islands. So let's listen to some music and go straight into it. Okay, Matt, so the next game on your list is developed by Capcom and directed by the one and only Shinji Mikami. Originally released for the GameCube in January of 2005, it later saw releases for the PlayStation 2, the Wii, and a HD re-release for PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and soon PlayStation 4, as well as being on PC. It's pretty much on all platforms. Uh, It received incredible critical acclaim and is regarded as one of the best action games of all time players take on the role of former raccoon city police officer leon s kennedy it is resident evil 4 indeed it is it's weird i've got two survival horror games on my list one i don't really like them um i was gonna say are you gonna be okay in the world of pokemon by yourself playing all these survival horrors won't the noises of the pidgeotos swooping past creep you out a little bit sorry i just get a shotgun um <laughs> I don't think they exist in the world of Pokemon. You may have got what? like a fi- you may have got like a fishing rod or something. <laughs> you can wave. Uh, I can probably do a lot of damage to a pigeon with a fishing rod. Anyway, um <laughs> Resi 4, uh, really for me, like it was a great game. Everybody knows it was a great game. Um the significance of it in the industry can't really be understated, even though it's been largely forgotten. Um Yes, which it was, which it really was... grates me in a little way, um, considering how many games now look to Gears of War or games of that time for inspiration about cover-based shooters and all that kind of thing, or that kind of action combat, where really it all sort of stemmed from Resident Evil 4 and how game yeah, changing it really Yeah, and also was. the fact that now quick-time events are now universally hated, yes. despite the fact that actually, you know, Resident Evil 4 did them pretty well. Yeah. Like, they were all right. Nobody really minded it then. Hey, uh, running away from boulders, boulders was always fucking scary. 
Yeah, and it also did the good thing of when you did die, it killed you in a really cool graphic way. So you yeah. just went, oh, fair enough. All right. Um, <laughs> Dive but, straight back in. Let's get let's let's do it this time. Kind of yeah. Attitude, and yeah. I mean, admittedly, like you know, Gears and stuff did have a ton a ton of innovation of its own. But the thing about Resi Four that made it so great was it was like I never played any of the other Resi games really. I've, I've dabbled since, but but at this point, I hadn't played any of them. And um, from what I gather in retrospect, it was this thing of like, they really felt like with three having this invincible enemy endlessly chasing you, they'd sort of run out of ideas in a way, you know? They, they didn't know what to do, where to go from yeah. there. And so they really put Resi 4 into R&D for a long time in terms of yes. trying to work out. It had it uh, four multiple versions before they ended up on the final one. Indeed. And giving it this time to just keep going back to the drawing board and keep like trying stuff new, A, meant that they came out with this game, which was just incredible. Uh, and B, also, you know, one of the prototypes that was going to be Resident Evil 4 ended up becoming Devil May Cry, did, which was indeed. another list game, yeah. which very almost made this list in yes. terms of being like massively formative and important to me at the time. Um, but yeah, Resi 4 is just a perfect little thing. And I think that that, that process of um, of just baking it until it's done and I remember like they didn't even really start having like big press reveals about it until they were like well on the right track because I remember some of the big first exclusives maybe an edge about it and even then it was like this kind of like murky kind of brown world where you're a hunter sort of thing and it's a bit like it's a bit like more like gunny and and frightening for different reasons even at that point they were kind of almost there and I think a lot of time now having that freedom to just keep going back to the drawing board with stuff is something which not a lot of companies have the luxury to do for financial reasons mainly. I yeah, think well, actually, especially Capcom now as well. They're, yeah, they are no not chance. in the same position anymore. No, no. Like, I mean, it's amazing they haven't even made Dragon's Dogma 2. I love Dragon's Dogma hugely for the same reasons as Fast I, uh, I was actually surprised they did not see this. I see that on the list. <laughs> yeah, it's, see, Dragon's Dogma is a funny one because it was like, it was very important to me in terms of my career. Um, yes. But it's it's one of those games where actually I feel like it's covered for the same reasons as Fantasy Star Online in a way. I think okay. it's another one of those games which like I will always have a, a huge fondness for these weird games that are clearly probably a seven or an eight, but. I love more than anything. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think I've, I've covered the story of Dragon's Dogma and how it kind of uh, made my career a bigger deal. Uh, well, gave me the confidence to, to start doing that anyway um, a few times. So I thought I'd skip over that one this time. But um, <laughs> but Resi, yeah, it was, uh, it was just stunning. And I think now the only games company out there who can really do that to the same degree are probably Valve, you know, with like that thing of just being able to just focus on something and keep doing yeah. it until it's right. And then bang, look at that. I mean, like portal two was a game that almost made this list on account of the fact that it's just aggravatingly perfect in every way. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's just stunning. Um, but Resi for me was, is on the list because, um, because as lots of, of men in their, their early twenties tend to, uh, I had a period where I stopped playing games much. And largely became more interested in alcohol and girls. And that was sort of, I just went out to clubs all the time and just went out dancing badly to admittedly actually pretty good indie music. Um, And yeah, it was a great time, but it meant throughout university, my kind of uh, socializing and partying meant that I wasn't really playing games as much. And then I was just playing a game, but I was just playing World of Warcraft, and that was kind of an all-consuming game. And I enjoyed that and had some great times with World of Warcraft. But 
I'd lost my expertise and I'd gone from being somebody who really did know their shit about like everything up to that point. Like, you yeah. know, you can name me Mega Drive games, SNES games, like all of the consoles. Like I might not have played everything, but I'm, I'm familiar with them. Yeah, you certainly know it. about it. Yeah, um, I know that. Yeah. Right up to like PS2, GameCube, etc. Um, but then I'd lost that a bit and I'd started to fall out of uh, fall out of touch with what was going on. And it was when my housemates just said, oh, have you not played Resi 4? Oh, you've got to play Resi 4. And I was like, well, I don't really play Resident Evil games. I'm not really into that. He's like, no, 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 but this is a different thing. And he said, honestly, you just play the first five minutes of it, play the first five, ten minutes, and like, just see what you think. Because honestly, within that within that time, you'll, you'll know what I mean. And I thought, all right, fair enough. Had a go on it, and it just blew my fucking mind. Like, just being hunted by these bastards <laughs> and <laughs> having my head chopped off with chainsaws and watching me as I knock down the ladders and then in horror see the ladders being pushed back up again. I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, all this stuff now is like we take this stuff for granted. But at this point, it was genuinely revolutionary um, and terrifying. And also just the fact that it was the first time I played a game which was not trying to be scary in terms of being jump scares. It was about oppression. It was about creating this this sense of being ground down, of being just pushed under stress, just cracked. Uh, True dread, of... almost. Not yeah, fear, like it was just more dread constant, like, than anything. Microaggressions. Of yeah. Just constantly like being like, ah, dad, dad, somebody right behind you, something. It was, here, it was one of the only school. shooters that uh, required you to sort of micromanage everything as well. Where's Ashley? Where are they coming from? Who's behind me? Why is the ladder not there? They're breaking through the window. I need to barricade this window. And all everything was just going on at one time. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. is It's really um, what most horror games up to that point had tried to do was all about shock, whereas this uh, felt to me to more about panic. Yeah, it, it wasn't absolutely. just about being like, here's a horrible thing, deal with it now. It was this thing of being like, oh God, there's a lot of them. Don't worry, let's just go around this corner. Oh, there's more there. Okay, fine, go around this way. Okay, fine, let's go through this door. This door's locked. Okay, fine. Let's turn it. And it's, until it's yeah. like after about six or seven of these things have happened, that's the point where suddenly you just start going fuck, 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 because <laughs> you're running out of options <laughs> and you're losing it. And then you're like turning and trying to shoot, and because you're stressed, you're missing your shots. And then like you're running out of ammo, and then like and then you're dead. And then when you died, it was like a combination of of being like a cathartic relief of being like, well, at least I don't have to deal with it anymore. But also the <laughs> fact that like you know they would cut off your fucking head with a chainsaw, and yes. you would watch it roll off. And it was just, I'd never seen anything so brutal in a game. And at that point, uh, that kind of thing still had shock value uh, in a way which modern games just absolutely doesn't. Like, it's just a kind of like, oh, look, they've done that, fine. But at this point, watching a protagonist lose her head um, to these monstrous people who appeared to be humans as well, that was, again, a thing that was like, fuck. Um, yeah, they weren't quite monsters, were they? It was Yeah, they, were... they just appeared to be like really ill-looking Spaniards. Um, but... <laughs> It was just, yeah, it was affecting. But for me, it was, um, it was, a, it was a great game. It was a design classic. Uh, even like things like you know the fact that you had that tank control thing when people later came to it when they ported it and said, "Oh, the controls are bad." It's like, no, the controls are perfect. You just don't understand game design. Uh, um, but for me, it was, it was like it got me back on the horse. There was a point where like, I could have quite easily become one of those people who just played um you know world of warcraft for a few years and then just kept playing world of warcraft and maybe now i'd just be somebody who just plays a bit of hearthstone or something you know i just i could have just been like yeah you know i used to play a lot of games but i kind of fell out of it don't do it as much yeah but it got me back into them in a big way it, it reminded me it was almost like a slap around the chops it was like what have you been doing man like you know you've you stopped keeping up with games and because of that now you've missed so much stuff and you don't know what's what and you've you've missed like 
exciting things. And that was the point where I started to go, fuck, okay. And start to like look up what I'd missed. And, you know, then following on from that, it was stuff like Shadow of the Colossus and lots of other late game PS2 stuff that I'd somehow missed. And I really started filling a lot of the gaps. That must Um, have been one heck of a summer. Yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, I was still at university. I was in my uh, second year at that point. So I didn't really have to do that much work I was going to say, didn't you just stay home and play games? Yeah, I hadn't hadn't reached the kind of third year panic of going, oh my God, I actually need to work really hard for the whole of this year. Um, The resident evil three-year panic. (laughs) Mostly in the second year, it was just like, let's drink cocktails, let's go dancing, let's eat uh, chocolate digestives and watch Neighbours. So um, I had plenty of time for games at this point. So it's good. I love how you gave up games to watch Neighbours. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just easy. <laughs> <laughs> to deal with the hangovers, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was just, it was a it was a strange time. Neighbours was pretty good at that point. There was one episode where there was a bloody plane crash. It was like, what the hell is going on? It was like it was directed by David Lynch. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was like, why are they all dressed in tuxedos? Why are they all getting onto a plane? And then it was like, suddenly there's a bomb on the plane. And I was like, is what? this fucking... <laughs> Is this happening? Like we were just like looking at the biscuits as if to go like, are we high? Has somebody spiked our biscuits? Like, is this really happening? Yeah, no, it was a, it was a good time. Well, then we're going to move on to your next game, which released a year later after Resident Evil 4. So this did come out in your third year. So it'd be very interesting to see what happened when this game came out. So let's listen to some music and go straight into it. <laughs> Matt, just before we move into the next game we're going to talk about today, uh, we have the question of the week, which is a listener question based around the idea of deserted places and video games. Um, So we've had questions like, uh, what one video game would you hate to be on your deserted island? Or what vehicle would you like to drive around in your deserted place? And all those kinds of things. Um, So today's question comes from Craig, who on Twitter is Craigity Craig which is craigity craig craigity craig that's like a less popular version of blankety blank <laughs> yeah so thank you for your question craig it is if you could choose to have a sequel from any dormant franchise or a sequel to a game you really enjoyed that doesn't have one yet to take with you to the island that no one else can have what would you choose oh that is it's tricky. I think partly because I'm too old and I know now that asking for sequels that don't exist is a uh, bad is idea. a dangerous, yeah. dangerous game to play. Yeah. Although it um, could turn out like XCOM Enemy Unknown. So, yeah, there's always it's, that. It's a tough one. I think, you know, I'd. I would like 
I would like another Dragon's Dogma. And it, it kind of saddens me that we haven't seen that already because I think it just came at a time when Capcom were already in kind of bad financial straits and seemed to be doubling down on safe options. And uh, yeah, I think I'd feel safe asking for another Dragon's Dogma as well because the original game was so fucked in so many regards. <laughs> I remember that, uh, being blown away by Dragon's Dogma. I played it. I played the demo of it at Gamescom a fucking a- aeon ago. And I remember just climbing on monsters. Yeah, I remember, so I remember like, playing games like be, uh, combat games. And I, you know, they were gradually getting better and they were adding more and more elements. But then I played the demo for Dragon's Dogma and I was climbing on a griffin and I was like, this is fucking immense. <laughs> this is so good. Yeah, that's the thing, this game it? is going to be brilliant. You, it's when you realize that the barriers aren't there. Like the, the, the barriers yes. you expect in games, like, like you know, you, you, it's you, there's a griffin. It's always lovely. Yeah. You run over, you jump, you grab onto the griffin's wing. It's flapping its wing around. You feel like you're going to come off, but then you manage to climb up onto its body and you're a bit more stable. And then the griffin starts to fly off into the air a little bit and you expect it to do the video game thing of suddenly it's going to have an animation where it shakes you off and you fall back to the, end of the ground. And then it flies off above the level and like does some shit. Yeah. But in this, it's like, no, you're still on the griffin. And now you are like... <laughs> very high in the air and you have no way of getting down to the ground safely and it's just like and then your stamina is going to run out in a minute from holding on and you're just going to fall to your death um and the fact that he would let you do that was just like what the fuck is this game like and and then the more you poked at it and the more you played with it the more you realized it was willing to just let you do what you wanted regardless of how shonky things got um and yeah i mean it also was a kind of the weird thing of towards the end of the game it had a bit where it would like show you a character that was like your beloved character like supposed to be like your your soulmate yeah and it was just based on like uh to do with like how much that character liked you and that was based on like whether you'd given gifts or just how much time you spent talking to them and because it didn't tell you that there was this romance thing in the game at all and then a lot of the people the person who was presented to them as being their <laughs> romance option was just a blacksmith because they spent a lot of time <laughs> buying and selling equipment which is just like oh it's just wonderful it's like Dragon's Dogma was both this incredible experimental gem of of strangeness, yeah. full of amazing ideas, a good bad mind with like yeah. a weird spoof of the genre, <laughs> but not intending to be. Wonderful, well, but you can take yeah. Dragon's Dogma two to the island with you today. So we're going to move on to the next game, which takes place on a fictional island of Pinatas. It's developed by Rare and published by Microsoft Game Studios, and it originally released for the Xbox 360 nearly 10 years ago now, on November 9th, 2006. It started out as a mobile gardening game before Microsoft acquired Rare, and it then switched development over to the original Xbox, and then finally to the Xbox 360. It's the life simulation game where players must tend to neglected gardens on the Pinata Island, as the island where all the residents happen to be colourful pinatas it reviewed quite well receiving mostly eights from major outlets and it and it was quite the commercial success it's viva pinata it is and it's just the best i mean i'm actually a big despite the fact that in many regards i don't like a lot of rares later output and i was a big fan of like you know early rare stuff you know diddy kong racing brandy yeah. kazooie they were, they were my jam all right i was down with that as a kid it's the I was N64, all over the, the um Damon from uh, Damien from Nintendo Life wrote a really good article recently about how Rare ruled the Nintendo 64, and they truly, really did. If you if you knew about the N64 and you grew up playing the N64, you knew games like Diddy Kong Racing, Donkey Kong 64, uh, Jet Force Gemini, Perfect Dark, all and Gold Knight, and all these things. 
Rare was such a good company in the 90s. They were, and, you know, for a long time, it felt like I used to say that I actually think I preferred Banjo-Kazooie to Mario 64, and that used to be an unbelievably controversial opinion. But now, actually, in the past few years, I've seen quite a few people writing op-eds of the same thing. So I think, actually, there are more of us out there. That's like me choosing like between my two children, because they are both two <laughs> games that, like you were talking about games that you know the back of your hand of, they are two games I know so well i can visualize every area and every bit of music in both those games especially from banjo kazooie <laughs> oh, yeah. mario was classy don't get me wrong mario had real class but banjo had something else and it was it was certainly something but anyway a lot of people uh didn't like a lot of rare's later stuff and got the wrong idea of it a lot of people i think thought that viva pinata was a game for kids which is stupid um even though it does look like a game for kids it was actually uh not at all um i usually even had a lot of love for nuts and bolts banjo kazooie nuts and bolts the, the kind of uh weird uh crafting vehicle making game i watched uh, which... someone play that in disgust i just couldn't believe what had happened to two of my favorite mascots i don't oh, no, i didn't uh, play it i but it I'll be fair, i didn't give it a chance i did watch someone play it for a good long time though and just building cars with those oh, it, was, it was really good like the really? thing was like yeah, no, it was really okay. good. The thing is, it reviewed really badly because actually if you try and plan through that game, uh, it's not fun because actually like it starts to run out of ideas, like good ideas of what you can do with the vehicles and starts to recycle them and the challenges just become harder. They don't become more interesting. Well, it's quite uh, evident it, that they built like this big open world for collectibles and the game must have started out as a platformer before all the car nonsense because the, the maybe, world is yeah. so... It's so vast. It's got many different multiple areas, very much similar to the original Banjo-Kazooie, and they have stuff strewn all over the place, so it must have started out development life as a platform. I don't know. I it's tough to say, Like, especially um, maybe the first area, which is a bit smaller, but... Uh... I don't know. The thing is, like, as you go on, the uh, the areas get less inventive, and yeah, um, exactly. challenges become much less inventive to the absolute detriment of the game. And it's weird that I, I'm, I'm not surprised it reviewed very badly because if I was trying to plug through that for review, I would find it very frustrating, and not, not fun. <laughs> but instead, I just took my time with it, and I really just spent must have spent about eight hours in the first area just messing around, tweaking stuff Fair because enough. it was this wonderful satisfaction of of being given a really specific task, like you need to like drive up a volcano and then fall into the volcano and collect something from near the bottom of it without falling into lava and then immediately fly back out the top of the volcano. And you end up being like, well, how do I do this? And you're like, well, you could make a little helicopter. or But you have quite limited tools and you're like, well, maybe I'll make a car with balloons I can activate. So the car drives into the bottom of the volcano and then just before it hits the lava, you activate the balloons and start floating up. And it made you feel a bit like MacGyver or something. But um, <laughs> And especially because that opening area was actually a stunning piece of design of it looking like this beautiful green rolling hills, but then everything is made of metal. And then you fly up to the sky and it's like the sky is just a dome made of metal and the the clouds (laughs) are just this massive like spinning clockwork contraption to make them rotate around the sky. And yeah, it was, it was really close to being magical. And um, as a game to play for a few hours until you're done with it, it was actually brilliant. I loved it. Okay, so but, um, yeah, Viva Viva Pinata. Pinata. <laughs> I mean, that was that was the real deal, and that was uh, again one of the games that kind of got me back into games at the point when I was kind of losing it again. I, I came back from university, maybe uh, end of my second year, third year. I was again a bit out of the loop. My brother had had an Xbox, I'd not. Uh, I didn't have an Xbox 360. Uh, my brother did and i got back i think after i'd finished uni actually i think i'd uh, just just graduated and i was back home i didn't really know what i was doing or what my plan was uh, for the rest of my life 
Um, Did anyone at that point? No, I guess I, I had, I, my plan was to go to London. That was my only plan was I'm going okay. to go to London and try and find a job, um, which was still a sensible thing to do about 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, and yeah, my brother had been playing some Xbox 360 stuff and he basically like just let me borrow his Xbox 360 uh, and um, a couple of his games and I just played them in my room. And those two games were Dead Rising and Viva Pinata, both of which were excellent for different reasons and both yeah. of which were misunderstood actually um but it was Viva Pinata that really stuck with me because I just I spent a lot of that summer just shutting the curtains to stop the actual sunlight from coming into my room so I could uh lose myself in a world of incredibly bright grass and incredibly large bright red chilies and um it was um yeah just a fantastically I mean, people use this term, but it was magical. Like there were moments where you would find yourself playing and it would be night in the garden and you just suddenly like stop and just pan around and look at your garden, look at what's going on and look at all the little creatures sleeping and just have this immense sense of pride and peace. And it was genuinely quite a beautiful game at times in terms of having these little moments. But in between, it was weirdly stressful. It was a... I, and I think I still want to make a video about this at some point, uh, and I will get around to it eventually. It's just difficult now of capturing bloody Viva Pinata. I don't have an Xbox One. I don't have an interest in only one, so like it's hard to get access to decent footage of Viva Pinata without that. <laughs> um, but it was a brutal game about like it kind of made me think a lot about like the circle of life, and um, <laughs> in my mind, it was like the most horribly blunt god game you can imagine. The fact that it's like for the first few hours of playing, it didn't let the creatures attack each other just so you could like learn how to play it. Yeah, slowly then, wean your way in. Yeah, and then like it, it just basically the stabilizers just suddenly invisibly, by the way, didn't tell you it was going to happen. Suddenly the stabilizers got taken off your bike and then any creatures which would actually have beef with one another would suddenly start fighting each other. And then all you could do was just basically like when creatures started attacking other ones, you could hit them on the head with a shovel to get them to stop doing it. But it wouldn't really stop it. Like it would just, it would still happen. And you could make little fences to keep them away. But, um, but eventually, it was this thing of being like, you, whenever you had um, creatures, you were going to attract predators for those creatures. But also, that yeah. was the game. The game was in order to finish the game and get everything, you had to purposefully breed a number of small creatures so that bigger creatures would come and eat them. And then after a bigger creature had eaten four or five of them, they would then stay, and then you'd have more of them, and they would attract bigger creatures. And it was this weird thing of just having to accept that, having to be this thing of being like, oh, I love these creatures. And then you give them names and you build them a house and then you breed them and then they have a little family and then their family comes and gets eaten by something else. And then you have a family of them. <laughs> and requiring you to be that detached, requiring you to see the beauty in the world, but also just just feel like that you were cool with not getting involved with its destruction, to be able to just be like detached enough to just go, well, look, it's just life. It's fine. Like, that's fucking deep, man. Like <laughs> that game was Especially like, in such Whoa. a colorful world that yeah. almost gives you a false sense of security. It was just too real. It was real. It was this thing of being like, wow, I love the idea of parents playing that with their kids, of being like, why are, why are these eating them? It's like, that's just life, you know? You just got to accept it. Like, <laughs> the and, circle of life, my child. <laughs> yeah, Viva Pinata had some really dark truths to it. And again, that was one of those things where I started playing Dead Rising. I started playing Viva Pinata. Both these games blew me away with their design choices for different reasons. And I was looking online and reading blogs and reading websites and nobody was talking about these games 
in the about why they were interesting like in the way that i thought they were like I, I couldn't find anyone like having these conversations and they might have existed you know if somebody's sitting there going oh, i was writing about that and no, i'm sorry i just didn't i didn't see it i couldn't see it <laughs> and this was around the time that i started terror mission of uh, writing about things like so i wrote about things like view pinata i wrote about things like dead rising and um yeah it was that period where i started to be like i felt the things that i wanted to, that i wanted to say about video games weren't being said and so i started just just out of frustration more than anything else to, to, to try and do it. Um, yeah. So obviously uh, you like Stardew Valley. Uh, you I made do. A, you yeah. made a video about it. Do you feel the same with games like that or Harvest Moon? Do they have the same sort of allure that Viva Piñata does? Yeah, to a degree. Uh, I think obviously like they're a lot more... Uh, more just purely escapism based uh, what i loved about view pinata was it was this sort of fantasy colorful escapism but it, underneath it, it had teeth and i don't know if it was intentional or not but uh it wasn't just a uh, fluffy kind of um palatable nonsense okay. to make the real world go away yeah it was the fact that it was actually i found quite dark um <laughs> and yeah requiring you to be quite cold about it and i think it's something a bit Something a bit Zen about that. Something a bit Buddhist about it. I think, in a way, I guess I'm not. I'm not a religious man or a spiritual man, but um, I think I found that to be an interesting game because you go into it with this sort of perspective, this human's perspective of pets, almost of like you want to have your lovely pet and you want to coddle it and look after it. And there were certainly some animals in that game which weren't hunted by predators, and maybe they were designed to be like that, of being like you can have this one and they'll be fine. But um, I found, you know, the fact that you would have these beautiful things and you'd give them names and you'd like them and then and then you had to basically just accept that they were gonna get eaten, really. Like and you could you could go out of your way to prevent that from happening. Can you imagine if that's how pets worked in the real world? Yeah. Every time you had also, a dog, you know, another dog comes sort of along is, and they, eats it. Pets die. Like, you know, it's you just it's <laughs> not that thing in the of like, kind of graphical way. <laughs> yeah. No, hopefully not as yeah, nasty, but um you just felt like weirdly impotent to deal with it. And the fact that all you could really do was hit things on the head with a shovel. And if you had a predators coming in and you didn't want them to eat your stuff, all you could do was then like keep hitting them with your shovel until they died. Like until they would explode into candy. And obviously it wasn't graphic. It was like twee. Yeah. But still it was this thing of like, it gave you the opportunity to control the world, but in doing so, like only really control it through this sort of enforcing violence and making these choices. And I don't know, maybe a powerful it was observer almost. I, yeah, I felt like that. But then I increasingly felt as it went on that it wasn't really my job, you know? It was your job to just just create these ecosystems and let them flourish. And uh, I don't know, just it was one of those things that I guess at this point I was still as a teenager, really, late teens, early 20s, still forming a lot of views about the world, especially not being a religious man. I think, you know, uh, um, I think it's just you start to think about things. And this idea of perspective to me uh, was, was really interesting of, of reminding yourself that actually, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to just look at looking after your things. You have to try and look at the bigger picture and, and, and accept sometimes that there's sometimes there's nothing you can do and you just have to embrace things while they're there and then let things be transient and change and adapt and not try and fight that, you know? Yeah. So I don't know, for whatever reason, Viva Piñata was a game that really uh, evoked a lot of these thoughts in me. And I think I wasn't alone. I think there are other people who, who found the same thing, just maybe not that many people. <laughs> <laughs> do you reckon Viva Piñata will help you with the passing of the Pokemon that you're going to catch? Yeah, I guess. I mean, that's the difference. That's why I'd live in uh, the world of Pokemon, not the world of Viva Piñata. The world of Viva Piñata, despite its incredibly unrealistic colors, is very real. Um, whereas the world of Pokemon, like, 
no one ever talks about like you know Pikachu's getting old and dying or anything. There's, that's why kind of why why Pokemon remains a very past his prime. Like, it's it's a, it's a wonderful realm for spoof Pokemon because everything is so stupidly naive and cheerless. Yes, it, it has to be sense. a very childlike version of more adult things that's for sure yeah absolutely whereas like the world of pokemon is just pure and naive and fun and, and even when you start to bring in conversations about as actually later games did um to be fair but conversations about like well is it fair to keep them in these balls and all yes. this stuff it's like pokemon black and white uh did that very, yeah very well yeah which you know fair enough i think if you're going to make these games for 20 years you've got to start actually maybe thinking about <laughs> things like that but the first one was just so simple and naive and stupid that it was just pure escapism and uh yeah it would be it would be a much more let's be honest if you're going to choose to live out your days in a world you might as well live out your world in a two-dimensional fantasy realm without uh consequences or even True. morality without like, any I mean, the only bad people yeah. in pokemon are like team rocket aren't yeah. they I mean, All they want to do is steal Pokemon, which you can yeah. just catch anyway. They're just kind of annoying. <laughs> like they're not like really evil. It's not no. like oh, actually, you know, Team Rocket have got this racket where they're like you know, importing like uh, slaves to work uh, secretly <laughs> under the government, the Elite Four, and it turns out the Elite Four are all like fucking like <laughs> making money from child prostitution rings and stuff. It's like no, it's just they're just annoying people with a cat. Like it's. If that's the worst the world has to offer, then yeah, I'll live in that world. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to move on to your penultimate game now, your second to last game. And uh, I am very interested to hear what you say on this. It's a game that uh, anyone who follows your work will know that you absolutely love and uh, kind of got the name for your pun- award-winning podcast from. So let's listen to some music and dive straight into it. Okay, Matt, the second to last game on your list, developed by From Software and directed by Hidetaka Miyazaki. It's the sequel to the relatively unknown on release PS3 title Demon Souls. It originally released for Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 in October of 2011, with a PC port of the game coming later. It's the action fantasy RPG that pretty much took the gaming world by storm with the tagline Prepare to Die. It's the challenging combat and gameplay that appealed to a whole broad range of players. It's... Dark Souls. Matt. Dark Souls is, uh, I mean, it's probably the best game ever made, to be honest. And, um, <laughs> even, But again, it's it's probably also about a 7 or an 8 out of 10. So that's fine. It's just... Oh, it's... Wait, 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 okay, so let's before we go into this, why is Dark Souls a, a 7 out of 10? No, it's not. I mean, I, I gave it a 9. Gonna... It's fine. It's, it's not. It's say. one of those ones that actually, it transcends all of the reasons it's a 7 in other ways. It's, it's, but it's, it's, it's fascinating in that regard, though, because if you look at it in... Um, 
in many regards it's just there are so many things about it that are not quite right or frustrating especially when it came out actually there were lots of things about it that were unbelievably frustrating yes i remember before it got patched uh, quite a lot of reviews were like before the patch this game was almost nigh and impossible for some i came parts. close to getting it a six out of just sheer frustration wow of being like, this, is, this is great but like oh it's my god it's funny because you off. say that and richard stanton who appeared on the show two weeks ago he was ha- having the same frustrations obviously not in terms of gameplay but he was having initial frustrations with the game and then all of a sudden you know it changed and then i mean yeah now I this lifelong this lifelong love affair with this game and this series has grown from the both of you. And, you know, there's a thing about that because there's a psychological effect that often um, if you if when you first meet somebody, you don't like them. Um, then when you do like them, eventually, if you turn around and actually get to highlight them, you like them more um, than you would have done. Yes. So I think there's probably something to be said for this as well, of having these games that are immediately kind of dislikable. But then when you come around to them, you really do come around to them in a big way maybe as a way of tricking your brain that you were like, you have to compensate almost. So you don't feel like you were wrong or I don't know, you know, it's like that thing of being like, no, I thought it was bad, but I love it. Like to kind of erase what your brain deems to be a mistake of judgment originally. I don't know the why. I mean, that's the fun of psychology. You have the data, (laughs) this is this, and then you've got to work out what the fuck that means. But anyway, I wonder if it's partly that, but no, I mean, I think dark souls for me, um, again, I talked earlier about the PlayStation 2 era and about this era of experimentation and uh, an incredible quantity of gems to discover. In many regards, whilst the Xbox 360 era uh, and the PlayStation 3, to a lesser extent, uh, had some uh, exciting gems as well. I definitely agree that the Xbox 360 had some incredibly unknown games that... It did. It did have some That got really cheap and really easy to pick up that were absolutely worth playing. It had a combination of some great gems... And also just a lot of really great AAA stuff. Like yeah. had like fantastic stuff sparking off. Things like, you know, Dragon Age, and even though that was better on PC, obviously, and Mass Effect, you know, there were lots Dragon's of great, Dogma. great games that came out during that like admittedly very long window. It was a long console cycle. Yeah. But still, at the same time, at the point at which Dark Souls came out, things have started to change and things have started to become much more safe. The early days of the Xbox 360 were very scrappy and experimental and and sometimes odd. Um, but towards the late game, it was this strange race full of dying horses where um, money was starting to drip away and lots of publishers were trying to vie for that kind of B-game space. And there was so much difficulty there that it meant um, game design was being driven a lot more by marketing than it should have been. And it meant we had lots of... I mean, do you remember how many crap, gritty third-person shooters there were coming out? Like, how yes. it's another brown first-person, yeah. third-person shooter or first-person shooter. It was just so many of them. Like, and it was really just everyone trying to grab a slice of this dying market share, um, and and failing largely. And um, it was it was a uh, for somebody writing about games from a mainstream pers- uh, perspective of writing about games for OXM. It was quite a, quite a boring time in some regards. You had these moments of excitement, but a lot of the time you just go, like in terms of like discovery, in terms of like it's a new weird thing. What's this? It's like that's another uninventive thing. I'm going to have to carry this on a sec. One sec. No problem. We're just going to pause there because it seems like Matt has someone at the door. Okay, yeah, and we're back. Matt just had uh, Quinn's at the door. Quinton Smith from Shut Up and Sit Down and Cool Ghosts as well. So, Matt, you were saying about Dark Souls. Yeah, so it was um, after a long swathe of playing games, which was just uh, uninteresting, really, uh, from a perspective of like 
playing lots of games. Uh, Dark Souls just came out of nowhere and was just like absolutely impenetrably weird and and unexpected and often cruel. But um, I, I played a bit of Demon Souls before, um, not a lot, but I played a bit. But even Dark Souls felt like something an entirely different beast. Uh, okay. Demon Souls was was great, but it had this sort of um, world based thing of you know you explored these little stories and then you were done with them and you start the new one and they were connected, but it was still. It was like it was almost episodic, you know, of being like, "Oh, let's go into this weird world." Oh, you finished that weird world. Now I'll go to another one and do something different in a different place with a different setting. Whereas yeah. Dark Souls just managed to convey this this unbelievable sense of place uh, that everything was tied together, a world, and the story was kind of impossible to follow. If I'm being honest, like people will say otherwise, but like, no, no. Like, See, was, you don't apply matter. to that school of Dark Souls narrative. Obviously, it's it's incredibly praised on one hand by many people who advocate the the law of the game is incredibly uh deep and it's hidden away in a fascinating style it's very different from normal games and then there are yeah, a lot I mean, of people who are like actually no that's a load of bollocks it's just very difficult and very obscure are you kind yeah, of sitting I mean, in the middle I'm, of that or is it more yeah. it's not i'm good. kind of like simultaneously agree with both uh okay it has got some really cool lore stuff and some really cool stories within it um, I don't think it does a good job of telling it to you. I think the idea that you should go and look through inventory items to read things is is uh, not a great system. It's basically uh, the same system of like exp- RPGs that expect you to go and read books and read books that are on shelves and yeah. like you know, it's not a good way of delivering story. Um, it's better than the whole read book from a shelf in an RPG system because it's only expecting you to read these little morsels of text. Yeah. Um, and you might read them passively, like in. And you pretty much gain nothing from books. Uh, usually they don't give you anything they're just the world building well they're crap ways of building worlds whereas in games especially when you get new weapons or items you read them to see if they're better and then it's kind of almost this hand in hand oh i'll find out whether i can use that weapon is it good for me but then also you find this little snippet about lore which is pretty cool and that was pretty smart. I mean, I like that, that it was like, it meant even if you weren't really into it, you pick up little bits. However, with Dark Souls especially, there was so much stuff going fucking on that like really, like you had to really be looking at it quite closely to have any sense of what was going on because it was trying to tell quite big, complex stories. Really where it succeeded with narrative was in the little stories of what's happening with that character. Like this character you meet early on and um, it was really, it was really good at theme and tone of just having this sort of like about everyone just collapsing and everything going badly for people and everyone yeah. you meet seems chipper and then they're fucking dead. And, um, <laughs> it, it was, it was it really good at that. But yeah, I think it was more that, as I say, it was just at that period, like everything was just so trite and so boring that games were not doing interesting things. And to play a game like that, where it just wasn't really telling you anything, uh, it was just so different. Um, and yeah, I think it was just one of those things where like afterwards it was really difficult to get excited about any other game yeah. for quite a while just because it was so unlike anything else and uh yeah i think for that reason it was just it was just a breath of fresh air and obviously that you know the industry has reacted by just just making games hard and then saying it's like dark souls which yeah, is and making incredibly dumb but yeah did you, did I mean, you ever I've, play I've, lords of the fallen no you don't <laughs> no i mean yeah i just i don't really intend to like actually now it's got to the point where when people say it's like dark souls it's actually a big turnoff for me because um very few people are able to eloquently explain why dark souls is even good frankly um so very similar to really uh like having it. a favorite band and they're like oh yeah it's like that band you like well yeah okay but they're not that band 
then yeah. never going to give me the same sort of feeling that that band does. It doesn't mean if they sound similar or they maybe look similar, it's not that band. <laughs> There's a reason why that band is my favorite. Yeah, and I mean, also, I think just lots of people just uh, talked about it being like the, the reason that people like Dark Souls was because it was hard and it was obtuse, but it wasn't. It was that it was a in a an industry which was very stuck into a, a method of using the same rules for everything. It, it created its own rule book and just sort of demanded that you learn it and and didn't tell you it and didn't pop up after you failed six times to go hey have you tried doing this uh like you know being like oh these potions are useful for this it didn't have tooltip handy helpful things it just it was like yeah this is our world it's full of weird shit and uh you're just gonna have to work it out and um there was a degree of of help and signposting but you know it was it was a game where it was a game where, you know, you walk into a woods and there'd be like large mushrooms and they'd punch you in the face and they'd just kill you in one thing. And like, you've got no way of knowing that. It's like, I think, the you know, so many games you can come into it with knowledge of, of, of what to do in certain situations where Dark Souls just didn't. And weirdly, actually, when you did work stuff out, a lot of time it was like stuff that video games had so universally ignored the ideas of for years. Like just the way the weapon combat worked of being like, you're like, oh, I can't kill this guy. And then you go, oh, well, why not? And it's like, oh, these shields, like, doing this. And it's like, well, hang on, where is his shield? And it's like, well, it's always mostly on his left side of his body. And I'm like, what happens if I just step around slightly to the right and start stabbing him there yeah. and using a weapon that isn't swinging in a way that catches on the shield? And then suddenly it's like, oh, this is easy. And it's like, fuck. Like, I mean, that's not like, it didn't like it's not like they invented a new thing. Like, a lot of RPGs have that thing of being like, we've invented our own magic system. It's called yeah. the Quizzle Blast Complex, and you need to get <laughs> six out of eight. That's just fucking ripping it's off sort of similar to, off It's sort of similar to when we spoke about Drag- uh, Dragon's Dogma and how those game walls that you expect to be there because they're in so many games just aren't there. And you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, right. I, I can do that. I can, I, I can actually do that. And, and it was just the way it was paced was totally different to lots of other things. I think, uh, you know, at this time as well, we had a series where games had started to become about 20, 30, 40 hours long because um, because people wanted content. And it was this bizarre thing of, and we still have this, of people wanting these big games. and But actually, they don't want the games to really ever stop them from progressing. So yeah. really what they want is these massive corridors full of lush different things. But the difference thing about about from software's games is they make these these condensed worlds that aren't actually that big but you spend more time in them and you get to really feel like they're places because you don't just walk through them once and it's funny how lots of people really didn't like that in dark souls they didn't like being stuck because they wanted to progress and they wanted to carry on and they also didn't like backtracking they didn't like having to go through places that already been it's this idea that like games should just be this this journey which doesn't really challenge you very much and doesn't really require you to hang around and it's it's kind of tourism rather than a uh, living in worlds but i don't know it was it was just a, it was a really different approach which um which really rubbed up a lot of people the wrong so just, way and so just to go on that point it, yeah. then um you know as a, a advocate for dark souls and the way it is obviously a lot has been made recently of people who have written op-eds about i would really like a dark souls that had an easy mode so i could experience the setting and the the story and just basically breeze through it do you I get why people are saying that, but they're wrong. Like because it is one of those games, and actually, again, this is why I don't. I get really frustrated with Dark Souls because, particularly, I think it's a game which is uh, so interesting in terms of why it works and why it's good that most people just don't have the uh, ability or lexicon to talk about it properly. But one of the things is I've seen loads of people saying, "Oh, I wish you could play Dark Souls games on easy so I could just enjoy the story." And it's like you know what? 
you wouldn't because <laughs> you just walk through these these like areas that had very little obvious like let's look at most video games right how do you do narrative uh how do you do visual environmental narrative in a video game like you put some fucking skeletons in the corner and you cover everything in blood and that tells you that something bad's happened. Or you have yeah. a fucking tape player with a woman talking about how she's just had to eat her baby or something because they're so poor. <laughs> and uh, because the soldiers came or something, you know, and, and, fine. But you have to do that because if you've got players who are just walking through environments once, you need to grab them and point to something as if to go, look at this, don't look, because otherwise they're just going to walk past it and not notice it. The thing with Dark Souls as well is it builds a lot of its narrative and especially a lot of its like mythos around its bosses which has maybe sort of lost its edge a little bit as we go through and Dark Souls 3 seems to have kind of made bosses a focal point of the gameplay instead of the narrative. Um, it, it would be weird to be able to just take Orenstein and Smo down in one go. You wouldn't notice the subtle visual cues of them sort of defending each other when one of them's down and you wouldn't sort of gain the lore behind them. And you would almost yeah, miss... Mean, th- these yeah there's things. there's that and there's also the appreciation of the craft like it's uh yeah. you know when you're making a combat game like that it's to make it also very easy it's very difficult to to convey like um why like how how well you've done some elements of it but no yeah there's stuff like that as well and uh i think especially with bloodborne i've been playing a lot and i'm kind of working on a video at the moment about the narrative design of bloodborne which actually i think is better than dark souls in many regards and um it's the thing of like you know you go to Yarnum, then you go to Old Yarnum, and you go through all these locations. And every time you get to a new location, it's this thing of like, you know, the first time I arrived there, oh, it's cool. But then you spend time in these places so long that you start to think about them a lot more. And it's it's the exposure that that you start to actually like piece it together. And I think when you're just going from one place to another place to another place to another place, it's just they become meaningless. And I mean, that's why Dark Souls 2 in my mind was a failure. It was just like, well, now I'm in the fire level. Now I'm in the forest bit. Now I'm in this bit. It's like yeah. without the... um by trying to make it bigger and having this kind of like video game style scope of being like so many places, so many locations, but less time is spent in them and less richness. It just means you don't do it. So you could play Dark Souls on a much easier difficulty, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have any sense of the story. You wouldn't even remember half the locations because it would just be that castle that you were in for five minutes. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the problem with most video games is how how do you grab people's attention when they're only in an environment for two minutes without being crass? And people take the piss out of the skeletons and the blood and the audio tapes, but and like, you know, the spotlight on an audio tape on a table as if like, please fucking look at this. But it's because <laughs> they've got no reason to stay there. They've got no reason to be there because the game isn't often challenging enough to maintain that loop. So, yeah, I get why people say, oh, it'd be great if I could play these for the story, but without. But it's like they don't understand that actually it's the it's the fact that you're in these places for a long time that makes them feel relevant and makes you think about them because it's not a cue. It's not like a fucking here's a cutscene that tells you something important. It's the fact that you, you spend an hour or two being like, I wonder what this place is about. And then suddenly you go, Oh my God, this is that. And like yeah. the relevance of it just, just jumps to you. And I mean, Bloodborne's amazing at that as well. You'd be like, why has this place got all these things in it? And then you work out what the things are for and what the, why they're there. And you just go, <gasps> and you know, you, you, there's no other way of doing that other yeah. than being like, well, how about we get the player to stay here for six hours? But how do you do that in a game without people being like, what the fuck is this? So to just sort of speak about this point for a minute, you've obviously been playing Dark Souls 3 um, and it, kind of continues the formula of Dark Souls 2 where you can uh, teleport between bonfires and you have a hub world similar to the Nexus in Demon Souls. Um, does it lose that little bit that Dark Souls and Bloodborne has? Or 
have they sort of made this you know easy mechanic of gameplay being able to teleport between bonfires is very uh useful for a i mean game. it's early days for... it seems all right i don't but... know i can't <laughs> i'm not I, I yeah it seems all right yeah not not I, I, not, I'm not the I'm same not level of dark souls of it, like well, I've not I've not played enough of it, so I don't know. Okay. I've, only, I've only played it for about 16, 17 hours. So, okay. like, at best, I could say now it seems all right. Like, okay. I can't I can't be like, yeah, <laughs> I can't tell you anymore. <laughs> That's fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so I think we're going to move on to your final game now, um, which is very interesting. It's a game I don't like, uh, <laughs> so it's going to be very interesting to hear you talk about it because I know for a long sure. time it was uh, a game you played a lot of. Mm. Um, so let's listen to some music and you can explain it to me Okay, so the final game on your list today, Matt, is uh, the last in your chronological order. It's also the most recently released game. It's developed by famed Halo creators Bungie and published by Call of Duty Juggernaut Activision. It was released worldwide on September 9th, 2014 for PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, Xbox 360, and Xbox One. It's the online-only first-person shooter, whereas as a Guardian, players can band together to fight against different races of alien on, uh, on the Earth's surface, all in the hopes of reviving a huge celestial being called the Traveler. Since its initial launch, it's received three expansions the dark below that released in december 2014 house of walls which released in may of last year and most recently the taken king a huge standalone update that marked the beginning of year two which was released in september of last year on launch it received mediocre to good reviews with many reviewers taking issue with the rinse and repeat nature of the gameplay with some also having some issues with the manipulative game design uh the expansion the taken king was much better received and scored highly by game critics last year it's destiny Matt, please tell me why the last game on your list today is Destiny. Well, I thought it just really pissed people off, you know. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. Destiny's a, Destiny's a simple one, really. I haven't really got a lot to say about it. I'm not really even playing it anymore. Um, but, you know, I'm sure I'll go back when they make another one. There'll be Destiny 2, Destiny Harder, which will be out soon, I'm sure. Um, yeah, no, Destiny's a simple one. It's on my list for one really simple reason. In fact, you know, uh, when I got into uh, video games when I was younger and I got into stuff like I uh, like Fantasy Star Online, which is actually on this list for very similar reasons. It was something which was uh, simple and cathartic. And uh, yeah, you know, as a teenager, I spent a lot of time on my own playing things like PSO because it was this endless, fun, numbery thing with colors <laughs> and, and theme and tone and just felt like a cool place. And uh, Destiny just was, uh, for me, the game that, that I wanted for years after Fantasy Star Online. But also it came for me at a really good time. You know, I, I was having a very difficult time personally and uh it was one of these things where I, I just found myself able to immerse myself in it and just lose myself to this like uh, this beautiful 
um, aesthetically just perfect little loops of simple shoot things in the head, collect things, shoot things in the head, collect things, going through the same areas again and again. Again, so many parallels with PSO of being like there are only about four or five different places to go and you just keep going to them again and again and again and doing the same stuff forever. Um, but yeah, I, I had a lot of love for it. And uh, I guess it's on my list really. It's like just because it's a, it's a reminder of being like, you know, I got into kids when I was younger because the great thing about games is you could just get into them and no yeah. one can stop you getting into them and you can be the loneliest kid in the world and have an incredible fucking time um, because it's just these amazing worlds and stuff you can just immerse yourself into. And I think a lot of people in our generation, that's how they got into games or why they did. It was somehow like, it was a bit of escapism. It was like, maybe you didn't really have many friends or something or whatever. And, you know, you just play games and it was great. Um and I think that value of games, it's easy to forget that. And I think it's easy when you become an adult and you become a professional that you start just thinking about narrative and thinking about, you know, relevance and thinking about clever mechanics and advancing the medium. And it's easy to forget sometimes that, that video games actually uh, can just serve a really basic purpose of being nice for your brain uh, when you just need it. When well, you they're need meant to be pieces space. of entertainment as it boils down to it they're games they're meant to be absolutely fun. but i mean i don't I, the term entertainment i really don't like because it's just it inherently comes with the idea that there's just no value in it um other than just making you smile or something i think even when you have these mindless things there's still massive value in it you know like destiny has uh, had huge value for me at a time it just provided this incredible sense of mental balance at a point when everything else in my life was going a bit haywire and I think that that's a really interesting thing. And it reminded me of of why I loved games as a kid. And uh, it reminded me of the fact that, yeah, that's fine. And I think uh, it's on my list, basically, because it's that thing of being like, it's a good thing to remember that. Because uh, when you've got to a point where your life has settled out and everything's going well, it's easy to be a bit snooty about the games that you seem to be see as being pointless or being like not having any cultural worth. But uh yeah, it's sort of a reminder for me of being like, no, actually, like, it's cool that games can do that as well. But it's also cool that games can just provide um, these really pleasing loops uh, for people who are in a bad place and who just need something to keep them level while they can find a way to to get out of that place and find themselves back to normal. And uh, yeah, I think it's that's that's one of the things I think is a, a key thing for me with games, especially and why I get especially um, militant about games uh communities and stuff being uh inclusive is because i think that's why you know games are used by a lot of people as a tool for people who are in a bad place in their life for one reason or another and uh you know the way you come out of that is the vital thing you know do you uh get through that bad time and use games as a crutch when you're having a rough time for whatever yeah. reason i know a lot of people who've been through mental health issues and have really found games to be incredibly valuable throughout that period yes. just while they find their feet again yeah. and but are you somebody who uses games when you're having a bad time and then comes out of the other end of it being like, hey, you know, I'm I'm back now and celebrates games as being this place where anyone who's having a bad time can use it to find their feet? Or are yeah. you somebody who really has never allowed themselves to to get out of that zone and is still in a bad place and refuses to admit that they're in a bad place and then forever clutches onto games as being yours somehow as something that, that the only thing you had and... Uh, and I think that's it's a fascinating thing, the fact that games invite anybody to to find themselves and and uh, and find the space they need uh, to solve their own problems in their yeah, lives. It's, that it's, people... uh, it's very funny you say that. Um, recently, I lost my grandfather, and I lost him in a very not normal way. He uh, commit suicide, unfortunately, and I didn't. I 
didn't really know what to do. I, I'm here in Japan. The rest of my family are in the UK. And um, it was all this kind of weird limbo. I was stuck in limbo. I didn't really want to play games. I didn't really want to do anything else. So coincidentally, I just played Pokemon. I, I, I had no reason to. I just wanted to play a game that I knew and I was familiar sure. with. And it helped me to sort of just zone out and almost reach a like a level playing field in my brain where everything sort of was laid out for me and uh yeah i definitely understand that sort of how games can help you through these processes absolutely i'm sorry to hear that but yeah it's it's, it's, it's okay thank you (laughs) but it's 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 one of these things yeah and i think that when you uh, that's what I always find very reassuring about games is that you know you know they're there, and actually, if you've ever played games and you've understood that they can be like that, it's it's really re- it's really good to know that like if things get really bad, then you can just go through a draw and you can just find Pokemon or Harvest Moon or like Destiny or whatever Absolutely. you know. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, I think it's one of those things where I think a few years ago I would have just turned my nose up at Destiny as being like ah, oh, it's pointless. What's the point? But it, it just it just <laughs> arrived. It came out at a point when I really needed it. And it became one of my favorite experiences in a long time. And it was a, yeah, it was sort of a reminder to like the, 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 the purpose that games can serve and to like not turn your nose up at that and not to get snooty about games being meaningful and to kind of keep one eye on the other side of it as well and respect the fact that actually they're really, really valuable. But also, you know, to be that thing of making sure that you, you keep that door open for everyone and you don't allow yourself to, to everybody latches onto games when they need them, but it, the trick is then afterwards to let them go and let other people have them when they need them. You know, you, you're done with the ball now, let somebody else have a go. And I think it's interesting how uh, a lot of the love uh, that comes uh, into our industry, a lot of the love and respect that people have one another and the, the communities and friendships. Um, and also a lot of the problems that we have, a lot of the problems we have, toxic communities all come down to that exact same thing, people latching onto it. And it's a case of whether or not you want to share it or, or decide that it's yours. And I think that's a, it's an interesting thing. And so, yeah, that's why Destiny is my 10th. It's not the best game ever. And, uh, you know, I'd be rubbish on an island because Activision would probably just decide they're shutting down the servers and I'd be like (laughs) dying and old, having a beard and thinking, God, why did I bring a game that was online only? It's okay, because then you can go back and play PSO and you can just do that. Yeah, precisely, right? That's why I brought PSO. They're they're actually basically the same game, but I know that PSO works offline really well. So (laughs) that's that's the, the thought process. End how you started. (laughs) <laughs> yeah well i think that was a perfect way to finish today's episode uh that was such a lovely lovely way to finish uh so the last question i usually ask people that before i let them go to their virtual deserted places uh, kanto in pokemon being yours um is if you could choose sort of any console from any history that you've gone through including the back catalog because obviously consoles are fantastic but they're built upon the games that come with them um if you could choose any console to take with you what would you choose um can i have a chip nintendo ds please okay (laughs) well considering you can have the whole back catalog but with nintendo ds's being region locked i guess that would be yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it was weird no yeah pretty just nintendo ds i think uh that yeah that was 3 especially one DS? of the ones that had like uh not the 3ds no the ds because okay. the 3ds has some great stuff but plus you DS, can play game boy advance games yeah yeah the game boy advance yeah. thing as well yeah. so i mean it, it'd be a toss-up between one of those two consoles so go for the one that does both okay fantastic well then there you go you can take that and the eight games with you thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you as a fan of yours and quinn's who is somewhere in the background 
uh, for, yeah. for a long time. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I will get Quinn's on at some point. He will have to come and choose a deserted place as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Pleasure, man. I'm going to go and live on a deserted Pokemon island, killing pigeons with fishing rods. <laughs> Fantastic. Is there anything you would like to tell the lovely people uh, where they can check out your stuff and all that kind of good uh, stuff? Well, you can go to, if you like board games or you think you might like board games or you, you wonder if you might, then you can go to shut up and All three of those things you can do there. Uh, and yeah, if you're interested in video game stuff, we've got cool ghosts. And you've mentioned the podcast Dark Souls, which is a podcast about video games. And yeah, that's it. Just and have reg- a nice regular day features as well. Regular features as well. It's yeah. just uh, the same. But instead of me talking about things in an intelligent way, it's me uh, uh, shaking my head and cringing at other people saying terrible things. <laughs> uh, but it's still enjoyable. Yes, so, it yeah. is. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for listening to the 13th episode of Final Games. Uh, I'm Liam Edwards, and you can follow me on Twitter at LiamBME, and you can find the show at Final Games Show, or if you can email us at finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. We're on SoundCloud and iTunes and all that lovely stuff, and also now on Patreon, because some people ask me if they could support the show, and although hesitant and I don't particularly like doing it, someone asked me to do it, so... I kind of done that. So that's there now if you ever wanted to support the show. So thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Matt for joining me today. We will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye.